Welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The ensuing show will change, transform, and otherwise alter you. Good luck. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by Bloody FM, the number one horror podcast network in the world. I'm your host, Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman, but where we're going, we don't need malls. Uh, they don't even exist yet, because today your losers are heading to Lisbon Falls, Maine to dial the clock back to 1958, specifically Tuesday. September 9th, 1958, a time when cigarettes didn't kill you, meat was okay to eat every night, and America promised dreams, not nightmares. Just kidding. But hey, the food at least tasted better, and that's what we're led to believe in Stephen King's 2011 hefty, hefty slice of historical fiction, 11-22-63. It's a book, Us Losers have been waiting to cover for over half a decade. And it's a book we're going to spend the holidays with this year as we're dedicating not one, not three, but six episodes to the time-traveling opus. Fortunately for me, and let's be honest, you too, constant listeners, I'm not alone in this journey. Uh, for this series, I'll be joined by two constants and one rotating loser as we try to fit in all the voices of the podcast. And we weren't lying when we said this was a club favorite over the years. So uh, let's hear from the Constants coming in from Nashville and hopefully, and I'm saying hopefully, bring in some of that hot chicken for the pantry and Al's Diner. Jen, say hello and tell us the first time you met Jake Epping. Hey, this is Jen, Marty McFly's girlfriend, um, Adams, because her name is Jennifer. I that's believe. true. Yeah, yeah, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a, one of the famous Jennifers that in the we, beginning we claim of, is ours. Yeah. In the beginning of Back to the Future, the dad drives up, honks twice, and goes, Jennifer. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then Back to the Future, too. She's Elizabeth Shue, who is, yeah. uh, you know, my queen. Um, so the first time I met Jake Epping, I got this book probably for Christmas or like right after it came out, but I didn't read it for a long time. I think I was intimidated because it was so long. And I was, I was like, this is going to be history. This is going to be boring. And so I didn't read it until my first maternity leave. And, you know, I just found myself with a lot of time on my hands. Um, I'm not sure why I chose this really stressful time in my life to read this, but I just picked it up and just like was immediately sucked in and just loved it so much and was finding myself like, I don't know, holding it in my hand while I was like nursing my daughter. And so I have a lot of sweet memories from reading this too for the first time. Um, but yeah, I absolutely loved it. And I remember, I think I bought it for a lot of people for the next Christmas because I was like, y'all will love this book. Even like my friends that don't love Stephen King, yeah. you know? Yeah. A similar story for sure. Uh, let's see if it's a similar story for our next loser. Coming down the street, waving a yellow card and warming, warning us to stay away from the beam? The beam? Uh, Flieger, tell us your first dance with Sadie Dunhill. 
Hi, this is Dan Ich bin ein Flieger. <laughs> um, ich bin ein Flieger. I should say it better. Ich um, bin ein Flieger. Ich bin no. ein Flieger. No. Uh, yeah, so my first dance with Sadie was pretty much like a month after it came out. My mom is a big Stephen King fan, but she would take years off. But for some reason, this and Under the Dome, she got right away. So I had the old copy, which I wish was here with me in Chicago. Um, but yeah, pretty much a month after it came out, I got to read this book and I really enjoyed it. it. It's, I mean, spoiler, one of my favorites of all time of his. Yeah, yeah. Well, because I remember we, I believe we read it together or at least around the we, same time. It's... We we communicated, I, it even seemed possible 2000. Yeah, yeah, I guess it would be, yeah. We yeah. probably did read it together because it was it was it was the fall of two, uh, 2011 it came out so yes um but uh well for today's episode we have by far the most familiar face on this podcast hardly a rotating loser but for this series right now he's uh he's got some extra homework extracurricular homework let's just say he's a time traveler himself and like jake epping he's uh hitting that plymouth fury and taking uh, taking you to to other roads uh, but today he's here with us and he's holding his six string. He's singing a tune about the single bullet theory. <laughs> Rockin' Randall, say hello. Tell us about your first time in Dallas, 1963. And also give us a little tease about everything we've, you've got planned for us in the weeks ahead. Hey, it's Rockin' Randall Harvey Oswald. And uh, I first read this right after it came out. It, it, I've talked about this in the pod before, but like, under the Dome and 1122 were sort of my forays back into King after maybe seven or eight years of, of not reading any King. And they're like two of my favorites. And, you know, in terms of Latter-day King, especially, especially, I think they're just really like both of them are great in their own ways. Um, Under the Dome kind of evokes more cocaine adult King, you know, very violent, very ridiculous, very funny. 1122 is a more elegant King you know, in its way, uh, it's a very romanticized King and, and probably one of my favorite love stories that he's written. So I'm, I was a big fan of this book. I remember specifically coming home from work and being on the bus and reading, uh, you know, I was near the climax of the book near the end and I got off the bus and I had to walk like three blocks to my place. And I just sat on a bench and just kept reading cause I didn't want to stop. Yeah. And that, is such a rare thing and such a special thing when you're reading that genuine feeling that you don't want to put it down and you will just like read anywhere. You will just go sit down at a bench and read. I'm so rarely driven to do that. And so I have very fond memories of it for that reason. In terms of this is the only book episode I'll be on because I did a couple supplementary interviews that we're going to be dropping over the next couple months that basically, you know, I'll put it very simply. King is very aggressive in the afterward about how he believes that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone shooter and how he has no patience for, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy theories. Um, as somebody who uh, is obsessed with a lot of those conspiracy theories and finds a lot of validity in them, that doesn't impact my enjoyment of the novel. But because King is so aggressive and so pointed when it comes to what he used as research, I honestly felt like we, I wanted another opinion <laughs> and um, that, and I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty dialed into these worlds. And so I reached out to a couple people who I think 
can provide a very smart, educated response to King sourcing and his belief systems when it comes to this specifically. And also just like what this book says about his larger political evolution as a writer. These are questions that I think are interesting, but ones that we didn't want to weigh down like discussions of the actual book, which is why I thought it would be helpful to do these like supplementary interviews. So we're not just like, you know, we're not getting distracted from the story itself by being like, uh, where's Jack Ruby? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's uh, so yeah, um, those episodes are going to be coming out shortly. They are with Brendan James, who is one of the co-hosts of the Blowback podcast, which I highly recommend. Uh, very. Yeah, yeah. Very, very smart. Um, very, very uh educated and clever when it comes to the American empire and um, the ways in which uh, American capital and politics has asserted its force across the world. And the second season of blowback was all about Cuba. So there was a lot of discussion of Kennedy in that season. But anyways, the, the fourth season just came out recently and it's all about Afghanistan and America's role in the wars there, but then also, you know, post nine 11 and our withdrawal. It's really, really good stuff. Anyways, and then our other interview is with James DiEugenio, who is one of the foremost, I think, uh, experts and authors when it comes to the assassinations of the 1960s, uh, RFK, JFK, uh, Malcolm X, and Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, His stuff is extremely well-respected. He runs a site called Kennedys and King uh, uh, that is basically a one-stop shop for Kennedy assassination scholarship. Um, from multiple authors and he also his book was the basis for oliver stone's recent documentary um destiny betrayed which came out on showtime relatively like i believe two years ago it's really really good there's a two-hour version and a four-hour version and his writings really helped contribute to that documentary so we also spoke with him and he you know and I think the interviews are interesting because they directly engage with King's sourcing and King's comments, just providing like another perspective, I think, on a lot of that stuff. And I'm sure I'll talk a little bit more about it as we go on today, but that's the tease. Well, that is a hell of a tease and something that I, I'll get a little FOMO of because uh, one of the hooks for me, this book was the JFK assassination because similarly, similarly to you, Randall, I've, I, I grew up just being obsessed over this stuff. And I think it was... You know, I come from a household that really prioritizes history, and um, both my parents were, were instructors at one point. And so, when I, you know, learned a little bit more, and I think obviously the the inclusion of, of Oliver Stone's JFK as a kid, seeing that at like age seven, uh, blew my mind or whatever. But like, I I just was really obsessed with this topic, and also it just came at a great time because, like you, Randall, I I was coming back to Stephen King, and it's a this is where I do believe that I don't think the podcast would have happened if at least on my end, like if this book didn't occur, because what, what happened with me is, so I moved to Chicago in 07 and I just happened to be unloading a lot of books that I had on my, my bookshelf and all. And I saw a night shift and I was like, Ooh, I want to read this again. I haven't read it in a few years. And so I reread that. And I remember working at DePaul at the time and one of my favorite places I've ever worked at. It's a wonderful college that I went to college to, and I, I worked at the College of Education. And um, my god, well, my who would become my godmother, uh, the the greatest 
<laughs> voice and mind in, in academics, uh, Kate Liston, I love her to death. Uh, she she saw that I was reading Night Shift, and so it became this start of a really like strong relationship. And um, and she would always get me new Stephen Kings. And so what happened was that first was Under the Dome, and I became enamored in that, and and I just ate it up. Like what you're feeling talking about like going to the park and reading 1122 Randall. I was doing that on the beach with like under the dome over Christmas. And I was like recovering from strep throat. And I remember just, that was my escape was just like, all right, I'm going to get away from everyone. I'm just going to go sit on the beach and I'm going to read this book. And then I became hooked. And then the next year, I believe, because I, I got under the dome like a year later or something. I got in 2010 when it was a paperback. So the next year when 1122 actually was published in a hardcover, uh, she got me that for Christmas right before the holidays again. And I stayed at home. I stayed here in Chicago for the holidays. And it was literally the only thing I wanted to do the entire time. And I recall everyone else, we kind of passed this book around like a hot potato because it was an expensive book because it's a big fucking book. And mm-hmm. I remember like Justin read it. I remember uh, my ex-wife read it. Um, I remember I even got it from my dad, like you were saying, Jen. Uh, like I was giving it as as a gift because I just I, I it, was, it really is an accessible book, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but what really spawned my my love for 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 King again? Apologies for this long tangent, but the the there's a there was a purpose here. Is that what happens at the end of this book? Kind of broke me, and mm-hmm. um, around this time, I. <laughs> And this involves Fleer, but I, we, you know, around this time, I, I, I thought that I'd lost the sense of nostalgia because I had taken, um, we, we went to a, a, a horror movie marathon around the same time this book came out and I had done, I had just, just had too many edibles and smoked too much. And I basically had a Larry David moment in the marathon when we were watching Halloween where my <laughs> mind was just like, why are you watching these movies again? Why are you always obsessed with the past? You're a fucking loser. Like, why are you doing this? And like, and I just remember like, like I was out of it. And then the book came out, this book came out and it really took me back. And then the love story just shattered me and I couldn't get over. We're not going to spoil anything because we're going this book by book, but I couldn't, I couldn't, the ending I couldn't get over. And there's certain specifics about the ending that I became obsessed with to the point of like, I would write articles about it on, on my, uh, all matter consequence of sound. And, uh, and, and then Fleer and I would talk about it nonstop and I'd be like, no, but what is, then you would, then you started saying, well, you need to read the dark tower because this gets into the other worlds. And that the fact that there could be another world where there is a fate that you like in there. And I'd be, and you mentioned that there is a, you know, a reference to 112263 63 in the, the ending of this, the book seven. So that is why I started the dark tower series is because I had never, I'd been putting it off forever and I wanted to find answers for 112263 in this long running thing. And then from there we started doing the cinematic universe for the dark tower. And then from there we, I was so obsessed still that I wanted to re- read Revival and then we decided to start this podcast. So sorry for that long-winded story, but I, for me personally, my invested interest in to Stephen King certainly came from just my obsession with this book. And that's why partly I really wanted to extrapolate this into six episodes because this for me is, and again, I haven't read Revival yet, but this is the last book I would probably consider like a top three, if not number one. And I thought can that I, was something special. But yeah, Fleer, can I weigh in too? So we actually, we were watching 
it was a 24-hour horror movie marathon. Yeah. <laughs> and we watched uh, Hour of the Wolf, which is like Igmar Bergman movie about yeah. like latent homosexuality and <laughs> man kills a boy at the beach with like a rock. Yeah. That's when we ate the edibles. Yes. And then Halloween came up and me and you were just like, what was that movie? Yeah. <laughs> and we were losing our minds. And we, yeah. I looked over at you and you were like looking at your shins like in yeah. the movie theater, just looking yeah. down. Um, but yeah, was, no. So then for Christmas, I had got you the Dark Tower, which Capri yes. had actually gifted me back in the day. But it was so funny, like, the intensity of those edibles. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And they, what a shared great because I, me and Mike had been friends from back in the day. And then I moved away to go to school. And when I came back, it was like I moved here in like September and this is yeah. October. So we were like re acclimating and just hanging out again. But yeah, it, it was a, intense moment but a memorable one obviously it was and it sucks too because it was one of the best lineups the music box ever put together like i'm like i randall i think you were there right it was it was like poltergeist pumpkin head yeah um and halloween and i mean it was just banger after banger and of course i fucked it all up because my old bassist kyle who's also a, a huge stephen king fan um <laughs> like he gave us these cookies or whatever they were and they're always too much there's there's always too much concentration and i just the weed is too damn strong. but then on top of that like flea live nearby so we just always run back and smoke at your place and then we come back and i i i just yeah i was a zombie at one point i think mac looked over during pumpkin head and i was like like drool was almost coming out of my like <laughs> I, I was like out of it and he's like dude what's wrong with you and i was like i gotta go home and Anyway, it, it cracked my head a little bit, but this is the story that put me back on the path of the beam. It all goes beam, back to Stephen King. It yeah. does. It really does. So uh, fun times to look back in the memories, and uh, w wouldn't you know it, um, there's a lot of nostalgia and looking back that we're going to be doing over this series. But for now, we are in Lisbon Falls. It's pleasant. We could sit here all day and chat about our memories, but instead, I think we should hop in our car. I'm not a Plymouth Fury. You know it. As uh, you mentioned Back to the Future earlier, well, let, let's just say I got my hands on a, a DeLorean. So let's get in and let's drive up to Derry, specifically the Derry Public Library. Mike Allen, if you see... Hey, excuse me, sir! Do you have Prince Albert in a can? You do? Well, you better let the poor guy out! Yo, Mike Hanlon, said I had to go! All right. Well, in the Dairy Public Library, uh, we, we, you know, we, we take out books. We see uh, Pennywise being a little shit and torturing uh, people in the in the library and making some some jokes, making some unfunny <coughs> jokes sometimes. But we also discuss the history and the background of said book that we're covering. And if you didn't realize from the title of the episode and our 20 minute preamble, we're covering 112263. And this is King's first historical novel. Uh, and as he says, and there's a lot of research to go through. So let, let, let this be a forewarning to you that the majority of this episode is going to be in the Daria Public Library. So pull up a chair, maybe get some coffee. If, you, if it's like, Anything like the, the the Bangor Public Library we went to last year, there's probably some coffee shops nearby. Enjoy yourself. Sit back because we got a shitload of story to tell. And uh, I hope that 
honestly, we all have enough plutonium because we are going to be doing a lot of time traveling in this segment. So to start, let's uh, let's grab our dancing shoes and be sure to, to burn those draft cards because we're heading back to the early 70s when uh, Nixon was president and the war was raging. We're going to be talking about the origins of 11-22-63, and we have to go back to the early 70s to do that. Now, thanks to our historian, Bryant Burnett, we've had dozens of articles and sources to cite from, and although a few interviews see King stating he had the idea for 11-22-63 in 1971 and 1972, a few others I've read also say 1973, which would make sense given that King cites that he was Sites. He describes that he was teaching school in Maine, and it was the anniversary of the assassination, which, as we know, 11-22-63, what's 10 years later? Uh, okay, it would be 73. So I'm going to say it's 73, but let's just keep it in the world of the early 70s. We'll do that, all right? It's pretty common. Like, uh, Under the Dome was like this, too, because that was... An, and same with um, the cannibals, which was yeah. you know a precursor to Under the Dome. Those were all things he was reflecting back on because they were early ideas and his dates always get really fuzzy when he talks about them. And I think mm -hmm. it's because like I think he probably always had this like little nagging notion about <clears throat> because, you know, he was in full kind of hippie mode by this yeah. point. And he I think, he, you know, this and he's always thinking about stories. So I think the idea of like going back in time and stopping Kennedy's assassination was probably an idea that people threw around all the time, like in the yeah. same way that we do about like going back and killing Hitler. Right. And so I think uh, that's why I think the dates get murky because it's probably something he had talked about in 71 and 72. He probably didn't like calcify it into a story until 73. Yeah. yeah. So I think we'll, we'll stick to, I like that. Yeah. Let's say, let, let's say that he had the idea. Let's say they calcified it 73 which, again, would make sense because the story that he says over and over again is that he was in the teacher's lounge and they were all wondering aloud what, what would happen or what would the world look like if Kennedy hadn't been killed. Now, according to an interview with uh, Natasha Footman of the Tesco Books blog, uh, from Halloween 2011. Man, I miss the old internet. I know, I did too. Yeah, I like King, would, King would do interviews with Tesco Books blog. You know? I know, and it's so cute too, because like they're like, I cannot believe it, we got this interview. Like, And he did a shitload of press. Probably, I would argue that this is probably the most press he's done yeah. Um, sense is, you know, is, is for 11.22. I'm just, we're, we're going to go all into it. But like, it's it's pretty wild that the stuff that he's doing on this is, I just don't remember him doing this with other books later on. But um, well, in this interview, he explained that, uh, you know, upon discussing that what if situation in the teacher's lounge, um, he then wrote 14 single space pages and dubbed it Split Track. I think 112263 is a better title than Split Track, though. <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Like Sliding Doors or something. Yeah. What if he called it Sliding Doors and it just like oh. just confuses the hell out of everyone? Like, what? Like, is, yeah. is Gwyneth in this? He probably could have made a lot of money on the Royal oh, Con Convertibles. <laughs> That'd be such a lame title. <laughs> just, I've got this cool time traveling story. It's called Convertibles. Uh, zip, zap, zap, brooder. Zip, zap, zap, brooder. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some other bad titles. It could be like, um, what if JFK didn't die? Like just the most <laughs> blunt title possible I can imagine. Like uh, Camelot? Can't, yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he, he wrote these 14 single space pages, dubbed it uh, sidetrack, uh, side split track, uh, but then he stopped. And why? Well, he told Footman 
The research was daunting for someone who is working full-time at another job. Also, I understood I wasn't ready. The scope was too big for me at the time. I put the book aside and thought someday, maybe I'd go back to it. I'm glad that I didn't go forward with it then. In 1973, the wound was still too fresh. Now it's going on half a century since Kennedy was assassinated. I think that's about long enough. And he kind of gives a little bit more of what those pages were while speaking to Tom Perota at the the John F. Kennedy Library and Museum, which is an incredible interview. I'll try to see if we can uh, share this somewhere on the socials because it's really it's really good. And there's a video of it too that's that's pretty awesome. Uh, but he was, you know, it was the research that did help, like hold him back. Like he's pretty insistent on that. And when you just, when we discuss like the production of this book, we can see why. Um, but here's what he had in the seeds. And there's a lot of seeds here. Uh, so he says, I wrote about 25 pages. Uh, I got all this stuff about the diner and how nobody in town would go there. Al Templeton has his specialty, which he calls Al's famous fat burger and people in Lisbon falls call it Al's famous cat burger because the price is so low. And there are all these rumors. But what he's doing is he's using his time portal to go back to 1958 and buy ground ground beef at 58 prices. So again, it's a matter of research. You go and you get the, you know, remember, remember, Tom, there are no computers. There is no Google or anything. You actually had to go to the library and research this stuff. So I want to pause there for a second. Um, first off, I want to do a side question. So Randall, you've, you know, you, you covered the cannibals for Under the Dome would you say that the seeds that he had that he describes in these pages are more in line with what we get with 1122 base versus like the stuff we get in the cannibals with under the dome? You mean like, uh, like his mindset at that time? Yeah. Like, do you think there are more concrete details that he took from the actual origins? The first time he started writing this than the cannibals? Yeah. I mean, I, he was a lot more cynical back then. And I, I mean, when you say like, what does the book look like back then versus what does it look like? Like in 2011, I think it would have been like, he says the wound is too fresh. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, that's the book I would have preferred. I know. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. well, maybe not. I mean, I do love the tenderness of this book, but that is something I talked about with Brennan James quite a bit is like, what does the book look like if you wrote it back when he initially had the idea? And I think it would have looked, wildly different i mean this i think of the thing about the cannibals which is the precursor to under the dome we have an episode about it in our patreon it's really interesting but it's so it's such a deeply deeply cynical uh, uh story as it's yeah. written in the early you know that was actually like what like mid 70s to early 80s like yeah he, i think he, he started po- it around creep show around that yeah time he, po- and- he poked around it for a long time before he did it but you know a lot of what you're saying about research is is very true to under the dome as well uh because and it's funny that he did these two old projects kind of back to back in a way uh we have a little bit more of that too resurfaced. Yeah, yeah because hold on to that note oh, i'll yeah. hold on to it i'll i'll, yeah. I'll leave it there um, but no, no, but like, I, I agree. I, cause I, cause I think there is that that's the disparity I really wanted to discuss because, you know, the two of us especially have really always talked about that mean King and like you yeah. kind you do kind of get glimpses of it. So like on page 56 of 1122, I thought this was kind of like a good glimpse into what this origin original story, uh, could say. So like Jake says, then I thought of the federal government discovering they could send special ops into the past to change whatever they wanted. I didn't know if that were possible, but if so, the folks who gave us fun stuff like bioweapons and computer-guided smart bombs were the last folks I'd want carrying their various agendas into living unarmored history. And I, I feel like that's more in line with like the king we we knew from like the stand, like mm-hmm. that mistrust of the government, which yep. 
I think in later books, it's especially when he gets into the crime procedurals, there's a little bit more of a, like a, a trust in in, mm-hmm. the, in institutions. Know, the, yeah. Yeah. But you, you talked about seeing how this book in 70s versus now, like, do you think that this would still be a love story in the early 70s? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, he was still writing. He was still interested in love stories back then. I mean, you know, Salem's Lot and um, and The Shining are both kind of built around uh, doomed love stories. So I think he, you know, uh, so yeah, I think it still would have been there, but I doubt it would have been as pronounced as it is in this version. You know, what do you think, yeah. Jen? Oh, Flieger, go for it. Sorry. No, Jen, please, you go. <laughs> I think... Yes, I think it would maybe still be a love story, but maybe more along the lines of uh, the dead zone. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. think Sadie would be nearly as big a part of the story. I don't think Jody would either, because I think for me, and this is just coming from my own frame of reference, I think when I think of 73 King, that's a king who is still drinking and using a lot, too. And I think that that is where a lot of his meanness and cynicism comes from. It's just that that just introduces pain in your life. And what I think when I think about this book, like the heart of it, I think is really about regret and like, Mm -hmm. what can we change and what should we change? And that is something that you learn with recovery is that you can't go back and change the past and you kind of just have to learn to accept it. And I don't think that a younger King would have been writing from that frame of reference. And I wonder like, because he's got, he's talking about having the idea for the beginning of the book, but I wonder what his idea for the end of the book was, or if he had thought about the ending at that point. Odds are he didn't, because yeah. we know he kind of uncovers the story as he goes. But I wonder if the ending of this book, like aside from the Sadie stuff, I wonder if it would have turned out the same, because I think... I just think that this is a book that I can tell is written by a man with a lot of years under his belt and a lot of experience and a lot of life experience. So I don't know. It might have still been a love story, but I don't know if it would have been as much of a love story of finding the place where you belong, which mm-hmm. is what I really love so much about this book. You know? Yeah, I I think there is. <laughs> I, I, well, I have a theory. So, but but Flieger, share your thoughts. Well, I I honestly think it's after the assassination, right? There's an innocence that was lost in America after that mm-hmm. moment, the same way that for maybe our generation, 9-11 killed off some innocence. So I don't think the love story would have, it, it It leans a little 1950s, but also that coming of age of the late 60s, right? Mm-hmm. If this was coming out 73, I just think that cynicism would have been a little bit more pronounced. So I don't, I don't think the love story would have worked as well, but maybe now having the distance of, you know, decades after for him to revisit the story and sort of there's almost like a yearning you know whether it's and i'm not spoilers but like there's a scene of like a high school dance that seems very innocent and quaint now to us that i don't think would have been captured the same way had this been written in 73 yeah Mm, yeah yeah i so i have this weird sort of so i I was thinking like in terms of the the ending i that's that's glad you brought that up because so i you know, we know that King is a sponge with pop culture. And so I've lately been on a, on a Clint Eastwood kick, big Clint Eastwood kick. I'm really? Like, I'm, I'm devouring, like, I'm, I've watched like four movies of his a day now at this point, but like, okay. I, it's, I, I, I just, I really love, I love his works. And so I, w- I was watching Escape from Alcatraz uh, the other night, and that's a 1979 movie. And I know that he had claimed to write, you know, this Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption in like from 76 to 77. 
or maybe even 75 to 76 or before the movie came out, but it came out in different seasons in 82. So it's like, I did wonder like the similarities between and granted escape from Alcatraz is based on a true story, but you watch that movie and not only do you see like how Darabont pulled from it, but even just the, the, the story itself, like you could see how it might've influenced King in, in certain ways. So using that stupid fucking inference on my part, or, uh, I, I thought the ending of 112263 could be the in the early 70s could be like Dirty Harry and he just like like Jake just goes up to Oswald and just blows his brains out in the <laughs> it's like and it's just brutal and everyone just like cheers him on at the end and it's like it's as it's as like wild and brazen as the ending of like Running Man or something like that where it's just like it's just <laughs> brutal it's just like gratuitously brutal um and I, and I, but you know, who knows? We'll never know. You know, it's. Do, it's, do you it's, feel lucky, Patsy? Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> like like Jake is just like this. He's like a because I feel like a lot of his characters around the seventies and early the early eighties too were like like brawny men too. Sometimes, like especially in his Bachman stuff. So uh-huh. I do wonder, like, if Jake would have been like, you know, this really beefy, not beefy guy, a but little like less more, sensitive. Yes, yeah. exactly. And you're like stepping on his intestines as yeah. he like goes through the book depository. Yeah. yeah, well, and there's also that theory, and this probably is something we're going to talk about at some point, but that Owen can, not Owen, that Joe Hill contributed to the ending and Joe Hill yeah. was not, yes. it yeah. was a kid or maybe not even born. I'm not sure when he was born. But I also think like if he is going, if whoever, if Jake would go back from 1973 mm. to 1958, like that is just not... So there's no contrast there. I mean, there is, but it's not nearly as pronounced as it is now. And I think that the the Sadie, I don't know if she would have been able to figure it out because the world has just changed so much, you know. But I also love this idea of like, he just wasn't ready to take on this. It's like, this is a great idea, but but it's not it's not ready to be uncovered yet as we know how he's kind of uncovers a story. Well, he's got a quote on that. And uh, he, 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 on the point of it all being too fresh, uh, he, he aligns with this, you know, and when discussing the past, um, you know, he states, I'm 64 years old now. I believe this is the footman uh, interview. Uh, I'm 64 years old now on the date when Jake is dumped into the past, September 9th, 1958, I would have been just shy of my 11th birthday. There's such a tendency to look back on those times through rose colored lenses I felt that I had to go back and look at the past as realistically as possible. And that makes me wonder also like that, that relationship to the past, I think a 2011 King, 2010 King, you know, when he's writing this, he certainly has more of a grip that on just that, the dangers of having those rose tinted lenses in a way. Um, but there's or, so much rose tinting in this. There is, oh, there yeah. is. But there's definitely like, you know, I I do appreciate the the fact that he does try to like slip in some like uh things that weren't great, you know, things aren't good here and there. Like he talks about the you know, the past smelling and things being too sweet and shit like that. But and, and but certainly he's like, he goes into everything it more. tastes so much better. Yeah. Like there's so I agree with you in that he does slip in like, oh right, everyone's racist, you know? Yeah. Uh mm-hmm. which is, you know, thank you for that. But but it's like the there's something that's so nostalgia fueled. Like when you talk about Flieger, when you talked about that, like that school dance, like that's so filtered through 
40 years or 50 years of nostalgia, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think he, he writes the fifties so well and so compellingly, which is one of my favorite parts of the book is just allowing this character. Like my favorite parts of this book are him just like dawdling around the fifties, right? Mm -hmm. Like driving through the country and just taking it in. And it's like King doing this, man, I really miss a lot of this shit. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. a root beer tasted better. It's it's real boomer shit, you know, but it's stuff I do too. <laughs> it's stuff I do too about the 90s, you know? Yeah, same. And so it's mm-hmm. like, oh man, I miss going to fucking record stores and looking at CDs, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like- Blockbuster nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, blockbuster nostalgia. Like, I mean, that's the sad thing about us is all of our fucking nostalgia is rooted in in like consumerism. <laughs> in <media>. But <laughs> right, Yeah, exactly. but it's like, but it's, it's uh. But I, I find that very charming, but there is also so much rose tinting. So I laugh a little bit when he says it has to be as realistic as possible yeah. because I do think there is a lot of realism there. And I think it's written incredibly well. But you can also see the moments where he's like, man, things were just better then. Yeah, you know? it's it's also coming off like, the, you know, the largest conflict in human history, World War Two. Mm-hmm. I think five attacks on American soil during World War Two. So you have Africa, Europe, Asia in shambles. The American economy is booming. Right. Yeah, so but he was 11 the, years old during that. I know, time. but I'm saying he the was, decade yeah. that followed, though, is it, it was, you, you know, you could work a job and get two cars, a house. Oh, yeah. it, it was Absolutely. just like the, the American dollar was so valuable. But, but it was, it was a time of like, we, they didn't realize that, you know, there were a lot of problems that were not being addressed because I think there was almost a sense of relief. The same way that the Soviet Union collapsed for the 90s, it was like, oh, we can kind of just exhale and just kind of enjoy it for what it is. So I think the 1950s is very much like that. But I also think when you look back on it, right, you see the highlight reel of the 1950s. You don't see all the stuff that was going on underneath the surface. So I can see how someone who was 11 around the time of, you know, the Kennedy assassination might look back and think, oh, yeah, this was a great time period. I I just always go back to that school dance. I I just to me, like, it feels so idealized. And it's great. Who wouldn't want to go to that that dance? Yeah. But it's also I just wouldn't call it realistic, but I do love the the dream of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I think I think there's an the argument for both because I think the idea that you would have so much more cultural context as you're just describing Flieger is certainly an advantage because there is that. And he talks about this in the book a little bit, like the idea that, you know, going back there, there's the, the notion that, you know, there isn't going to be annihilation, a nuclear annihilation when the, you know, the 13 days situation of the Cuban mm, missile crisis happens. Mm-hmm. I, I think having that, that, that context of just kind of knowing like the, the, how good we did have it versus how bad it would later become. I think there is like that, you know, how, you know, the morality of it all aside it was better in the sense of what the economy could do for some, you know, some certain people. And it, it, I could see where someone could make the argument of like, oh, yeah, you know, things were at least simpler, you know, back then. Because I still do get nostalgic, even just like a pre-internet age for a, like you're saying with the 90s, Randall, where it's just like people actually just discuss things and things had more mystery. And I do really miss that. Um, but yeah, so I do think it's like this sort of, you know, there's pros and cons and i think that to to him writing it in 2011 versus the 70s but i do wonder in the 70s if there would have just been any nostalgia like i think it just would have been a blunt hey i'm back in the 60s well yeah because he didn't have nostalgia cultivates over decades it does yeah 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 Yeah. it's usually about two or three decades i think which is you know, I was expecting the 90s to come back and now I'm living the dream, you know. I'm just imagining. Like, it, it is funny to see like early 2000s nostalgia, though. Oh, I know. That's a whole like, other, no, not that's yet. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's yeah. so fucking funny because 
like especially when you read 1122 and the stuff that he misses from the 50s versus the stuff we missed from the early 2000s yeah i know well Well, and that's another thing too is that like i feel like part of the it's it was better or worse back then it's just we weren't as connected back Mm -hmm. then and so Mm -hmm. all of these things were happening in different parts of the world and we didn't see it on social media or the news constantly and so I feel like it was easier to kind of disappear into your own little Jody bubble oh, and absolutely. pretend that everything else was fine. And maybe, you know, you would know about the bigger conflicts, but that also only happened at six o'clock when the mm-hmm. news came on and then you could turn it off. And I feel like we were still kind of there in the seventies. Like but we dude, did know more, but we not the way we do now. That is the King dream is just being able to disappear into a small town. I mean, it really he's, is. He's yeah. Part of why I shit. love reading King, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's part of the, that's got, it extends to like the Institute from mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Like mm-hmm. that, that there's something almost old fashioned in that book where a guy sort of wanders into a town, uh, you know, trying to reinvent himself, gets a job as like a deputy and gets a girlfriend and lives a nice quiet existence. I mean, these are those are things that you can't really do anymore mm-hmm. because right. we're too connected. There's too much integration. There's too much monopolization. Like like there was a, a looser quality to the mm-hmm. world back then. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. a pros and cons to that too. You know, yeah, like I, I, absolutely. The, the, it's it's like a, my boy Joey Pants uh, quote from The Matrix. <laughs> You know, ignorance is bliss, and I, uh-huh. I think there is a, a sense ignorance of that. Ignorance is bliss is something that everyone says. That's not a fucking <laughs> no, joke. I, I know. I always said the matrix, <laughs> but I, but I always reference it because then you get know, a little harp and everything. And also, hey, come and on, Joey Pants, pants. Awesome. love them. You know, as, as Neo quoted, "Whoa." <laughs> <laughs> what do, you, do you think uh, Keanu Reeves would be a good Jake? Uh, well, we'll save that for, uh, for you know. Hmm. We'll save I mean, it. We'll save no, it. But yeah, I would you know, watch he, it. I just watched the miniseries again recently in preparation, so. That actually kind of would be interesting to see. Well, get ready to talk about the miniseries again in January when we, because we can't even fit it into this year because we've we've decided to spend so much time on this. But King is pretty, he's pretty, uh, you know, King is pretty uh, strict or at least forthcoming about that nostalgia. He he says in that, that, that Footman interview, the more I worked, the more time that I spent in the past, the more things that I remember. And that was a pleasure. It was nice. Vacation in the way things used to be. But I love the present too. So it was a great vacation. What is it they say? It was a great place, but I wouldn't want to live there. Mm. Which, fair. I mean, I, yeah. I I think, you know, having said that, the DeLorean or there was a, you know, my fucking Julius Meinl or whatever had a s- secret doorway that went back to the 1972. I'm taking the doorway, but... Julius Meinl. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. So like many projects, uh, this ended up gathering dust in King's memory warehouse. But uh, to quote my other man, Dom Cobb, an idea is like a virus, resilient, highly contagious. The smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. Anyone know what that's from? Is this well, Dom you said from Dom Fast Cobb. and the Furious? Yeah. No. No, it's uh, oh. Inception. <laughs> Inception. Good. He knows. Oh, I will say okay. I'll give you that quote because that's a longer quote. It's more highly specific. It is highly specific. Like, yeah. That doesn't sound like the Fast and the Furious. That would be a really <laughs> funny quote coming out of Vin Diesel's mouth, though. Yeah. I know. <laughs> to, to paraphrase uh, my not man from another movie that we referenced earlier, Back to the Future 2, Randall, good for you. You know your history. That's what Biff Tannen <laughs> says to Marty McFly. <laughs> Anyway, I almost speak- introduced myself as Biff because because uh, 
Jen did a oh, because I did Jen did a Back to the Future ref. So yeah. well, we should do some more Back to the Future references throughout this six parts. I'd love like, that. You know, maybe we get. <laughs> Actually, I, I got I got something later on that we can do this for. Yeah. So right. anyway, this seed for King grew and grew, and I don't think we're spoiling anything by saying the following novel has uh, since defined him in in many ways, uh, like uh, what Dom Comp says. But first, we got to go back in the DeLorean. We got to hit eighty eight miles per hour and bounce up to the year two thousand seven. Uh, an interesting year, my first year in Chicago. Uh, mm. But it was around this time. So he breaks word about this project. So in January 2007, King first publicly spoke about the idea of 1122 in a Marvel Spotlight magazine that month tied to his then new comics, Tied to the Dark Tower. The piece he wrote was titled In an Open Letter from Stephen King. And it's not even an idea for a novel anymore, but a comic is uh, he meditates on other possible original ideas for the medium. Uh, Flieger, Tell us what he wrote. Uh, why don't you read this section right here? Quote the King. I'd like to tell a time travel story where the guy finds a diner that connects to 1958. You always go back to the same day. So one day he goes back and just stays. He leaves his 2007 life behind. His goal? To get up to November 22nd, 1963 and stop Lee Harvey Oswald. He does. And he's convinced he just fixed the world. But when he goes back to 07, the world's a nuclear slag heap. Not good to fool with Father Time. So then he has to go back again and stop himself. Only he's taken a fatal dose of radiation, so it's a race against time. So hmm. I've never seen that quote. There. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, that's a much like that's a much more genre like friendly idea. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a lot more like a race against the clock feel. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. it also does have the Back to the Future two part of going mm -hmm. back and seeing, you know, yourself. Yeah. participate in events in the past which is a little mm -hmm. weird he loves radiation poisoning too yeah. yeah i mean who doesn't who doesn't <laughs> it's like jen certainly does i she, sure do yeah watch, mr chernobyl over here <laughs> that's your comfort watches oh, is, you, is just really seeing is. the, the so humans good. melt um twice this november <laughs> god would you go back in so, time and stop chernobyl uh, jen oh gosh <laughs> i would lose all the content yes absolutely i would go back and stop chernobyl <laughs> yeah <laughs> although the thing the the through line of that and maybe of this is like if you stop that chernobyl is it going to happen again with another thing? Because there's a fatal flaw, not to spoil the show. But, yeah. you know, can you ever really stop anything? I know. Yeah. And that's something that we're going to be discussing all six episodes uh, <laughs> for sure. But uh, so, yeah, I, do we want to see this? Would we have wanted to see this book over what we got? Do you think it no. kind of seems it feels more like a Bachman book, to be honest? It yeah. does feel yeah. more yeah, like a Bachman book. That's a good way book. of putting it. Yeah. And, and no, because I think then I'd lose what it is that I really love about this book, you know? Yeah. Which yeah, is, I'm like, I'm definitely intrigued by it, but I do think it's probably like what we got is probably better. Yeah, I'd like to I would read both, but I wouldn't trade one for the other. It, like it comes across more as a short story to me, the mm -hmm. race against yes. time, radiation, like the pace of just like a hundred page book tearing through it. Maybe yeah. it could have appeared in like, uh, if it was 07, I guess it probably would have appeared in like just after sunset. At that mm. point, you know, maybe or yeah. maybe even full dark, no stars, which would be the most bizarre fucking entry for that collection. Just like, oh, here's a novella about going back in time to kill uh, JFK with time travel and everything else is like so grounded in that, in that collection. Anyway, um, one of the things that we do love about this book is the drama. And we've talked a lot about the dramatic side of King over the years. One of my it's not, I don't even think it's a hot take anymore, but I think that his strongest flex as a writer is when he brings out the the tears. And mm -hmm. I think by this point, though, which is around 2010, 2011, 
he had arguably had his most his, his strongest works dramatically his dramatic works specifically behind him i mean you're thinking about different seasons dolores claiborne the green mile um i mean the list goes on i mean even lisi's story even though there are supernatural touches in there there's a dramatic side to that for sure um not to mention even the dead zone so but the, here's the thing like the press behind 11 he like was really championing the the realm of historical fiction as this like new sandbox for him and there is a lot of energy around his his quotes like not only just with the historical fiction but there's also some anxiety tied to how people would see him in this new king so and it's really intriguing because I, I i didn't realize that this was like kind of like a point of con- not, i guess not a point of concern but maybe like a point of contention i guess but in october 11, 2011 king admitted to the wall street journal i've never tried to write anything like this before it was really strange at first like breaking in a new pair of shoes this might be a book where we really have a chance to get an audience who's not my ordinary audience. Instead of people who read horror stories, people who read The Help or people the people of the book might like this book if they can get the message. I want to pause there for one second because in this Wall Street Journal piece I'm referencing, which is aptly titled Stephen King's New Monster, uh, there is a lot of discussion about this rebranding for himself. And it's... It's a sentiment that was reportedly also shared with Scribner. Now, I mentioned us talking about a lot of his strongest dramatic works already. Do you think this anxiety was like a little too late? I mean, like hindsight obviously is twenty twenty for us, but I really don't recall thinking, oh, a time traveling epic. Stephen King can't write that. I mean, what about you all? Like, was this, did it seem like a swerve to you at the time? Dude, I think he is way in his head with this shit. He is like, Mm -hmm. he is, he's been talking about rebranding or like he, you know, having gone through all this history, like over the years in the early nineties, he was trying to rebrand himself. That's why he wrote Gerald's Game and Dolores Claiborne and Rose Matter back to back. He was trying to appeal to women specifically Mm -hmm. uh, because I think he was worried that his books were becoming too pigeonholed in the horror genre. And I mean, he worried about that for moment one. And you had a question at some point in this, Mike, about like if King had published this first uh, instead of Carrie, yeah. like would he have become yeah. a horror writer? And, you know, we talked about that a lot during our Bachman episodes because uh, he almost published Roadwork after mm-hmm. Carrie mm-hmm. instead of Salem's Lot because he didn't and his agent was like, ah, stick with horror. You know, it's like he didn't set out to be a horror writer. Mm-hmm. He And I think he always had insecurity about being viewed as one when he felt he, he was a very good dramatic writer, which he is. And so... I, I like bristle at him saying this a bit because I feel like he still hung up on it because yeah, even yeah. in Bag of Bones, 1997, 98, he, they were like, well, this is his, it was his first book, I believe with Scribner because he had uh, moved on from his previous publisher and they were like marketing it like Gothic horror. Like, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, this is literary horror. Like King is, is he's doing literature now, not paperback, um, you know, genre and which is ridiculous because Bag of Bones is not a very good book, but it's, but then, you know, as he went on, like he started writing crime, uh, in the mid two thousands and like he was always pushing himself and trying new things. And this quote about like, can Stephen King write a time traveling epic? Stephen King can't write that. Like, that's 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 bizarre. what the dark tower is yeah that's bizarre it's like yeah. by this point in his career he has flexed so many different muscles and mm-hmm. has done really well at the vast majority of them he can write 
anything. Like, well, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's debatable. I'm just saying broadly. And so I think that this is all in his head, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 Go for it, John. Yeah. And I think like at this point, like I think of Stephen King now as, you know, his own genre. I think he kind of transcends genre um, because he does write about horrific things. But he also like a lot of his early stuff. If you were looking at a cold classification, I think is sci-fi over horror too, mm-hmm. or sci-fi first, you know, mm-hmm. um, it just has horror elements in it. Um, and we on another podcast, we were recently talking about him as Protestant horror versus Catholic horror, which <laughs> I've, I've been thinking about a lot because I was just like obsessed with that. But yeah, I think that somewhere along the line he became Stephen King is a genre in and of itself and even Sadie Hartman uses Stephen King as a clarifier for genre but I think this happened well before 11 63 yeah 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 and and I'll tell you a bag of bones defender I do really like that book <laughs> um, no 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 it's okay um, I just love but, how all the horny moments I was gonna say Pierce anyway um <laughs> But I think because I, I got into King in the 2000s, like early 2000s. But before that, I was into him from the films. So I, I associate him with like Carrie and like sort of these older films. So to me, he he did feel out of time, right? I was a kid in the 90s watching 70s horror movies. So the idea of him like traveling back to a different period, it, it never seemed like a big stretch to me. So even this like rebrand, it's like he's rebranding to what I sort of already associate him with. You know what I mean? Like, and it's yeah. every every writer and every artist is going to change over time. But even when it's, I think even phrasing it as a rebrand almost feels too much like the publisher, the marketing team, right? It, it kind of takes away from like the actual writing that was going on at the time. I was going to say, I think that's a smart way to put it, especially the books he cites, like the help. I mm-hmm. think he's, I think he's listening to a lot of marketing people at, at the publishers Scribner and, and they're the ones who are saying we want to tap into this quadrant yep. you know yeah. and i understand that but it's like that quadrant could have been accessed with many previous king books but maybe they're being more pronounced in the marketing in that way i think like yeah i mean that's kind of poisonous uh pr you know like um bullshit that i think can really convolute and confuse uh you know a writer's sense of their own appeal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I And I just think about like when we, I mean, the last event series we did to this magnitude was It. And a large chunk of that discussion, which was basically this episode for It, when we go into the history of it all, he's bemoaning the fact that he's just like, I mean, he's very self-deprecating. We talked a lot about how he likens himself to like McDonald's, you know, like a hamburger and french fries McDonald's and stuff. And I get that at that time because he's coming off this like cocaine crazy 80s where he is the 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 Mr. Ghoul, you know, the master of horror. Like he he's you know, he's certainly a personality to that effect. And I can understand that he would want to stress more. Like I mean, cuz still in the 80s, we still don't even see, you know, at that point when Stand by Me pops up and it says based on the story of Stephen King, people are still like, "What?" Like, you know, and I think by this point, that is all but gone. Like, you have Shawshank Redemption, which was nominated for an Oscar. And then you also have The Green Mile, which was a blockbuster and became, you know, nominated for Oscars too. Hearts in Atlantis, because you have the drama there. I, I, I stress the adaptations because I think that's the general, cons- you know, that's the the ubiquitous, like, point of view on Stephen King. It's sad to say, yes. but it is. Like that's people mm-hmm. are going to know the movies. I mean, most of our origin stories with King start with the movies. So, it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's a common know, it's, denominator. Yeah. It's a common denominator. Yeah. So, I I just I think that was a big part of it too is just like 
Well, no, we've already seen that like his prose has given us at least three of the best dramas of the last 30, 40 years. There's no confusion here. I, but I, so I do, I agree with like in a sense that it, it absolutely is just marketing talk, but here's the thing. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. King was instrumental in coming up with the marketing campaign. So I do think it still did come from his anxieties of like, can I do this? Mm-hmm. Which may be the, there's a lot of discussion here, but like, I think he's a man of what ifs, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that we'll also talk about in a second. But I think he always has had that what if of just like, well, you know, what if I didn't get hit by the car? What if I didn't write this? Like, what if Tabby didn't pull out uh, Carrie? And, you know, he has that, Oh, it's almost like an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge sentiment of like, am I going to wake up one day and like these what ifs are going to actually come to fruition? And I think he's constantly battling himself over the last 40 or 50 years on that question of like, you know, am I, can I do this? Can I be a part of this, this group? It's, I, I, but again, like, I think that's a good thing because when I think of some of the best creators, even the best athletes, they're constantly pushing themselves because they never get comfortable on their their own professionalism and it really lends itself to a time travel book of what if you know mm-hmm. what what if totally. i could go back and change xyz yeah yeah and you can totally see that and it's not just again he's he's the artist right he's creating the raw material but i also think he's been around so many marketing type people that he's almost like you guys have told me i can't release two books at the same time so i create a suit you know yeah the bachman books it, it's i think he's also interested in just kind of anything that he gets into hey guess what i'm going to direct a movie hey guess what i'm going to do you know it's the opportunity presents itself. I think he's going to go for it. And I, I think you're right, Mike, though, the what if quality, especially with this book, it, it just like, I think that does linger in his mind. And I think it comes across in the writing. Well, he talks about that. What if stuff in, in hearts and suspension? I mean, honestly, one of my biggest regrets of our interview of just is not bringing that up because that's something that I've always dis- just thought about with him is that like, why does he have that sort of thing? Like that, what, what is it? The, um, the, God, what's the term? Oh, wow. No, the not fun. It's the idea. It's like um, the most writers have it, where it's just like the um, the complex, or it's like you don't feel imposter like, syndrome. Yeah, imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. well, John. I mean, he's he came from lower class upbring upbringing, went to a state school, and uh, got famous writing genre. It's like the majority of people that he's probably at parties with are like Ivy League rich kids who yeah. um, publish you know novels about the human experience. It's like mm-hmm. you're gonna feel insecure because class is you know when it comes to I think most issues, political, social, cultural, class is usually the foremost indicator of comfortability. And I think that he is somebody who probably feels like he had to prove himself a lot more to a lot of different people because of the unique circumstances of his success. I, and then what I love about him the most is, and this is not even hyper hyperbole, like the thing I love about him the most is that there are two ways you can go about that, right? You can look, and I've, and I've seen this just being an academia myself, is that you can look at it and just get self-deprecating de- and just wallow into a hole and have this sort of, um, you know, this vitriol or venom towards that other end. Or you can do the other thing, and it's the the mantra of living well is the best revenge. You could go and do it, and you can prove them, and you can fucking set the mark. And I think that's what that... I, again, I don't want to call it anxiety, but I just think that, 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 uh, that, that, yeah, I'll just call it anxiety. I, I think, think it that is ex- driven by anxiety. Yeah. I think yeah. that anxiety is what has certainly fueled him for the, since the beginning. And I think mm-hmm. that's why he's, 
you know, the output that he has is, is to such magnitude. But I bring all that up because it's clear that this was certainly something that he wanted to prove something with this book. And I think that the reason why I say that is because of just the amount of sweat equity he poured into the background in this book. Now, Jen, you mentioned earlier that when it comes to most of his writing, he writes as he goes, he creates the story as he goes. And we've discussed mm-hmm. that on this podcast. This was different. And, you know, like any historian diving into the past and coming up with the story, King really did his homework. So earlier we talked about the, how the research held him back in the 70s. And in the same conversation with Perota at the JFK Museum or library, he explained how the online resources were just an incredible supplement to his research here. Uh, Randall, why don't you take this next part? It's a, it's a little lengthy, but um, yeah. I think it's really important to kind of show just the lengths that he went to. I'll say this. He did a lot of research. He was also very choosy in particular about yes, the research yeah. he went to. And that's something I talk about a lot with um, my guests. But I'm, you know, we'll save that for that, those episodes. Okay, here's the quote. I saw Kennedy more as a man as a result of some of the footage that I looked at. That's one of the great benefits of the computer is that a lot of this archive footage is available. The thing that stuck out in my mind the most was I found video of him in Tampa and Miami. This was just days before the Dallas trip, and he did all the things that the politicians do, the grip and grin kind of thing. And it gave me a chill to see him in that same car with the same open top. He goes into the crowd and the Secret Service agents are just kind of looking at each other like, what do we do now? There were barriers, almost like the ones you see sometimes between lanes when the highway's under construction. And there was a gap. He slips through the gap and he starts to shake hands. The agents are kind of like, oh man, I don't know what to do now. And they're the same agents that were surrounding him days later in Dallas. But the thing that I really liked was that they showed him at a political function that night. And there's a guy in alpine shorts with the suspenders and the lederhosen and the alpine cat and he's playing hail to the chief on the accordion kennedy comes in and this is kind of like a holy shit minute like this guy i can't believe it i had to put it in the book because at that second you see kennedy the man just going like how bizarre is this is this world that i'm in like us doing this right now so i got a picture of him as a man now the the reason why i put this quote in here is that i genuinely can't recall any moment in his back catalog from this point on where he had to do any kind of research like this for a real life figure. Is, is this the first time he really had to do that? Uh, in terms of writing, I mean, that's sort of like, I think a distinctive quality of this book that I'm not sure has the ripple effects to me are more negative than positive Mm. uh, because I think he used to write more obliquely and abstractly about like, real world politics in his book like the dead zone is clearly based on real shit but Mm -hmm. he didn't like put you know richard nixon in there or something like that right like and then um (laughs) uh but then you know under the dome Mm -hmm. is a very clear satire of bush and cheney yeah and the right-wing post-iraq movement at that time he doesn't you know yeah there's he calls out some stuff explicitly but not really it's like Mm -hmm. he allows those characters to be satirical figures Um, and, and he allows them also to be their own characters, you know, that are independent of Bush and Cheney. And this is the first book where he's like, you know what? I'm going to actually write Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And that's something you see more and more in later books is he starts like weaving in real world figures a lot more. And I think, um, you know, to very mixed results. So yeah, that's what I'll say. Yeah, Dark, Dark Tower has some references. It's historical figures, but again, it's very surface level. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's reference to Kennedy possibly being a gunslinger, but it doesn't get a lot deeper than that. You know, he Sorry, mentions Jeff Kennedy in like so many different books, uh, especially yeah. leading up like in this decade leading up to 1122 is clearly on his mind. Well, and speaking of that, like we're just covering Full Dark No Stars and there is a really clear parallel to BTK, which again, kind of like you were saying, Randall, like BD is it's his own character and there are no direct references, but he also got a lot of backlash for that, specifically from family members. Mm. And I don't know where the, that this lines up in the writing of that and the timeline. I know it was pretty soon after release, but I wonder if that was in his head too, was like, I got to get it right. If I'm going to write about this exact person, I have to get it right because they have relatives that are still living. You know, there are people that were there that could could dispute it gets, me. It know? gets dicey too because you start like projecting your own feelings for mm-hmm. that person into uh-huh. the character in ways that I don't think necessarily always serve them. And I have more yeah. thoughts on that later. Like well, Kennedy is a gunslinger. I don't know if I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, I I think there's also there's a flip side of that coin because one of the reasons why I think he had to really pull his weight there is because of Oswald. Now. I've held off mm-hmm. on including Oswald stuff because we're going to be talking a lot about him in a section coming up. Uh, not a section, an episode coming up. A lot about him. It's, it's going to be almost too much. Um, and he'd agree with me because he said that was some of the, the rough writing for him was just having to do the, the Oswald stuff in there. So I do think a lot of that the research of the trying to humanize them, trying to make, make them as realistic as possible came from the fact that that there was no way around it to make you know to do this without you know actually having oswald be a real character in this and Mm -hmm. i think that's kind of an important distinction to show just his writing process to this and i think that that's probably one of the biggest hurdles for him when he was starting out because you know as we just discussed like his process is just stream let's just do it let's just let me get to the page and I'll find a way to get there. And I imagine there were a lot of pit stops for this. And there were. I mean, the research alone was, you know, through this. And I think based on a lot of the interviews I'm reading, it wasn't so much that he just had all the research and then he went to write. I think he was doing research while he was also still writing, too, which I imagine also is kind of new for him at the well, time. Well, you start and, writing and then you realize what you don't know and you yeah. have to go back and research that. You yeah. know? The problem, though, and this is something that has really plagued, I think, Latter-day King, is mm-hmm. that his research pops up inorganically at times yeah. in his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was rereading some of the Al sections where he's basically laying out the Oswald stuff for Jake uh, in the first hundred pages of this book. And some of it reads like extremely clunky because oh, he's yeah. just reiterating research materials that he used and i mean we just talked about holly and there's parts in that book where it just feels like he's reading a cdc press release you know what i mean and (laughs) that shit is is it it very much pulls me out which is something that uh you know i noticed i think more acutely on this reread of 1122 there's a little bit of that in the end of big driver too where yeah oh yeah we talked about that yeah yeah Yeah. but he also leaned on good old old school research cracking the books yeah so the, the stuff that you would had have done in the 70s uh both he and his longtime researcher russ Dorr, who has since passed away uh went on a healthy diet of historical documents newspapers books clothing and appliance ads sports scores and television listings 
They even went the extra mile and hit up Dallas for a week to see Oswald's apartment building on West Neely Street. They even paid a resident $20 to go inside. Makes me think like the two of them were like in the episode of like The Wire. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like fuck, walking fuck. around. Fuck, 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 fuck. Um, you think he could have uh, given them a little more than 20 bucks? I think so too. Yeah. I mean, come on. Hey, this was 2007 money, okay? Yeah. <laughs> 20 bucks went a lot more. What if, I guess what that's if, true. What if they said, uh, hey, I, I need to see this house. This was where Lee Harvey Oswald lived. And it's the guy's like, no, no. And it becomes this long story for him. And they're actually there for days. And they're like, oh, how do we get this guy? And then yeah. eventually, like they shoot him, and <laughs> that's what I imagine is like this this Nathan Fielder show. Y'all keep yeah. telling me about it's, something yeah, it very similar to that. Honestly, that is a very similar subplot to what would happen in the in the uh, in that show. But anyway, so they, they visit that. They visit the home of uh, General Edwin Walker, one of uh, Oswald's failed assassination targets. Spoil alert for the book <gasps> history. Uh, they also went to the. The uh, Sixth Floor Museum, which is the site of the former Texas School Book Depository, they had a private tour there. I will uh, add, we talk a lot about the Texas School Book Depository, the Sixth Floor Museum. Um, yeah. In my interview with James Eugenio, he has a lot of thoughts about uh, the curator there and King's reliance on him and what that museum represents specifically to people in Dallas. Interesting. Mm. Okay. Yeah. It's Is it like more negative than... Uh... Hey, you have to listen to the episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just say this, that it's i james or jim does not see that as a uh the best source of information mm. yeah yeah i mean it's a tourist attraction so <laughs> i can only that's, imagine that's they're part like, of it and yeah, yeah. you know I, it's weird that these things are tourist attractions like we went to when i was in la they had this like titanic thing and they you like go through granted they didn't even really have much titanic uh items there there's mostly just stuff from um the the other white star lines that but they, they were similar objects so they had it but when we got out there's like a gift store and they're like had like things like you know you get a coffee mug that has like a life preserver on it i'm like jesus christ this I is know, so right? fucking yeah. morbid in uh, memphis the hotel room where dr king was when yeah. he shot is now a museum and i remember we went there in sixth grade and there was a couch and a lady who just constantly protests there and she'd been doing that for years wow oh. Yeah, oh I, I, I in Vienna, I went to a church that was built out of skulls and bones, and I was taking mm. pictures. And this lady like accosted me and was like, "How dare you disrespect this?" But would you like a postcard? Oh, <laughs> such That's a sick... badass! Did you buy the postcard? Is it was this is a postcard uh, no, I, also I did take made more out pictures because I was like, "Don't tell me what to do." <laughs> Don't t- yeah. Were you like when you, you said, "I'll make you, I'll, I'll add your skull to that building"? Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! It's like quiet, you. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so he used all these, the, you know, the, the, these details. And he also sp- had dinner with uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin, who was an assistant to President Lyndon Johnson and uh, the author of the Abraham Lincoln book, Team of Rivals, and her husband, Dick Goodwin, who was also part of the Kennedy team. And they chatted about alternate histories, particularly worst case scenarios that could unfold if, you know, Jake did wind up changing history. And and those points were also used in the the novel. Uh, I did like this tidbit though, from his interview with Errol Morris of uh, the New York Times. Jen, why don't you why don't you give this one a read? Okay, 
I asked them to sort of spitball about things that might have happened if Kennedy had lived. And one of the things they pointed out, it's a weakness with Obama too, Kennedy was inexperienced enough to have a real difficult time dealing with the Senate and the House of Representatives. Johnson was much better at, better at it. He was able to push a lot of stuff through. He's, he was very canny about it. Johnson said, well, we ought to do this, this, and this to help memorialize our dead Jack Kennedy. And so we got the civil rights thing and a bunch of other stuff as well, including Medicare, I think. And not surprisingly, uh, a lot of those what ifs stem from his own what ifs, particularly his 1999 accident, uh, which makes sense given that we've discussed at great lengths in this podcast, including the episode we're recording right now, because we just <laughs> talked about it literally 15 minutes ago, uh, about how the what ifs have always swum in his brain. Um, there's another part of this Morris interview that I think is t- telling on this uh, aspect. Jen, take this one too. I also want to say every time you say "what if," my brain starts playing the Creed song. Oh so, yeah, the know, classic. Is that, the is that the, is that in uh, Scream? Scream three. Oh yeah, yes it is. God, that's personally my favorite soundtrack for my money's worth. But um, <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. Um, Halloween's Dominion again. Um, okay, it was Doris who said, I thought of this, but it just seemed so wild. Wallace might really have gotten elected in 1968. It's fascinating, though, isn't it? That one minute, less than a minute in Dallas, and everything's up for grabs. I believe in those watershed moments. In 1999, I got hit by a van and almost killed. I was out taking a walk in the afternoon. I've thought back on that many times, and I'm thinking if I'd left a minute earlier, if I'd left a minute later, if I'd stayed another 15 minutes at lunch, if somebody had dropped by, if, 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 but those things didn't happen. So I happened to be at that one particular place at that one particular time, and something happened that changed my life. Today, it probably doesn't matter if we talk until 10 minutes of one or 10 minutes past one, things are going to go pretty much as planned. Most days they do, but not always. I and think that's th- interesting yeah. because I think a, a, a king in 1973, I don't know if he's thinking that much with that much detail about the what if because mm. i think in that age especially with somebody who's still drinking you're really just kind of trying to get through the day and you don't you don't you haven't lived long enough to see the results of the what if going one way versus the other you know what i mean yeah and i, I think so much of what if stem from that those gasps of happiness mm-hmm. you know or yeah like, what if this never happened or what if yeah I, what if somebody takes it away, you know? Exactly. And I think that when you're starting off early on, and this is good, if this is going to be your first book especially, you're not going to have that sort of, you know, that specificity towards that, that and or the, even that relationship towards that what if at all, really. You also might not have the clout to indulge in it as much as he does in this book, because I know that's why he, you know, released the cut version of The Stand, because mm-hmm. as a new writer, you just can't give us an 800, however many pages this are. You know? That's true. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I just imagine like, all right, here's my first novel. <laughs> They're like, Stephen King, who the hell is this guy? And it's like this right. 800 like, page opus. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Can you give us something smaller? And he's like, well, I got this story about a, a school it's a, girl. It's about a period. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's his sophomore. Um, so he, he also, you know, in, in terms of what ifs, he did indulge in, uh, you know, some of the conspiracy theories that have piled up in the wake of Kennedy's assassination. And as we've talked already, he basically said that Oswald acted alone. And and that's something that, as we've already teased, Randall's going to be talking a lot about uh, in the accompanying episodes coming up. But real quick, though, like, 
do you, do we think this was a smart decision, at least narratively? Like, I know we don't, per, I mean, I can't speak for everyone on this podcast with, with the exception of maybe Randall, because I think we've talked about so much about it, but like, <laughs> I've, I don't, I think, I don't think it was Oswald. I think it is an oversimplification of things. Having said that, I do understand why he did it for the novel. Like, I get that because I think it gets, I think you need that through line to make it simple. But what are your all thoughts? I mean, I I will happily talk, but I, <laughs> I want to yeah. make space for yeah, yeah, go, Jen well, to jump in. Well, Flieger, you're you're you do believe in the conspiracies too. I so. yeah, no, I, I I'm big in the mafia connections, mm-hmm. um, especially being from like the Tampa area, and there's this mobster Traficante who's like in a uh, Donnie Brasco is featured kind of briefly. They make it look like Miami, but it really takes place kind of near my hometown even goodfellas when they go to the mm-hmm. tampa zoo it's lowry park zoo um i i think i i'm a firm believer in the patsy theory that there are a lot more people involved here and that he kind of was the fall guy mm-hmm. um i was just listening to the true anon pod they were doing an update on the kennedy yeah. assassination the other night. yeah baby. i know randall randall we, we've discussed this too and maybe the oversimplification i, I, I don't know it's i go back and forth because now I'm doing the what if, but like, what if this was a little more fleshed out? But I actually think this book is more about Jake and Sadie than mm-hmm. the actual mm-hmm. assassination. And I'm actually kind of happy for that because it's one of the great love stories that King has written. So I don't mind it. If, you know, if I want to just get academic and, you know, it's not Errol Morris documentary here. It's a fictional novel that, you know, focuses more on the emotions than just the actual facts of what happened. I, I don't, I don't mind the oversimplification, but I do the way that we got a, you know, extended version of the stand. I wouldn't mind seeing an extended version of this book as well with some of the other research that maybe, or some of the pathways that were explored that maybe didn't make the final cut. Yeah. Go, go. Let me just say like, um, the, I think narratively it is smart to streamline the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin put it really well. He says, He's like, well, you know, the Kennedy stuff is like the fourth or fifth most important thing in the book. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the best way to look at it. Like, you know, it doesn't bother me as somebody who finds the lone shooter theory uh, absurd on its face. Like, it doesn't bother me to have that story told because, you know, I think it's it exists within an alternate reality anyways. I mean, that's the thing about King um, King's works is that they do exist there. And I'm more than happy to go with him on that journey. The thing that there's just this weird, like the afterward left such a bad taste in my mouth because he's so, and this is something that has really emerged in the last, you know, I think like starting with this book kind of, and through his later books is there is just this, um, this sort of incurious, heavy handed, um, rejection of alternative theories when Mm -hmm. it comes to a lot of, I think, flashpoint issues. And it drives me a little crazy because I don't need like King to indulge every conspiracy theory, but he, he can't just say, I go with, you know, I believe the lone shooter theory based on what I've read. He has to say things like, you know, I don't see how anybody like in the afterward, he says, I don't see how like anybody, uh, any reasonable person could come to the conclusion that it was uh, that it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald with a gun. And it's ridiculous. And like, I love him. And I say this with love, but it is like, 
he does that. And then he also talks about like tinfoil hat conspiracy theories. He uses that phrase in, um, and then when you read, uh, like, uh, 1122, Al, who is very much clearly the voice of the research portion mm-hmm. of King, mm-hmm. uh, says things like, oh, these theories have all been disproven, which is ridiculously false. Yeah. And, um, like, but it, the thing is, like, if you, it's like how all, I think, like, when King was doing his research, there's always been such a huge wealth of research um, on Kennedy that, in the, those early internet days, it evokes the way things are now, where mm-hmm. it's very easy to find research materials that back up whatever your mm-hmm. preferred point is. Uh-huh. Um, that's sort of – there's so much shit now that you can neglect some stuff, take in other stuff. And I think what I take issue with is um, what King – and this is part of the the mailer uh, quote that yeah. is at the beginning of the book as well. And – um, and it relates is that King sort of does this dance about people who believe in conspiracy theories want easy answers uh, to these things when actually it was something more chaotic. And the more chaotic thing is one guy with a gun shooting. And I understand that there's a chaos to that. But I'm really confused by that framing because that is actually a very concise um, and consequent, mostly consequence free read on it is that it was one guy who did mm-hmm. this uh whereas the conspiracy theories the the credible conspiracy theories around kennedy are the whole point is that it's so complex and so convoluted and involves so many different people from so many different corners of the government of the mafia of uh the business class and the elite class that they're there is never going to be a clear answer, especially no. now. No. The whole point is that, like, this Kennedy's death came from, like, hundreds of different strings all coalescing on this one day. And that's why the Kennedy assassination still fascinates people to this day, because it is one of the clearest examples of all the various levers, all the things that operate yeah. under the surface. Uh, coming together and actually like resulting in this one cataclysmic event um, when something did emerge from the chaos. So the whole notion of like conspiracy theorists just want easy answers. The people who are serious about about Kennedy research, and if you read like Libra or um, American Tabloid, which are kind of the two um, uh, fictional books about the Kennedy assassination that actually – um, live within the chaos of conspiracy. Those books are all about that confusion, subterfuge, uh, and uh, like mind-bending lunacy is is what resulted in him being murdered. You know what I mean? One of my favorite takes, though, is still from The Rock at the end when Nicolas Cage gets the microfiche and he's like, uh, "Honey, you want to know who really killed Kennedy?" As oh, I love that movie frames so much. Film is like, oh, <laughs> yes. solved it. Yeah. yeah Mike, what I were you going to say? Well, the, the thing that I think about also is just, when we talk at great lengths about this, especially if we have a couple of drinks in us, but it's just the changing of the guard on what, uh, on how society has, has views, you know, viewed conspiracy theorists. Oh, yeah. In a way. And it, it's kind of crazy because I, I, I pinpoint two points of the death of American culture. Uh, and obviously there's far more nuance 
things that happened, but in terms of just the two big ubiquitous moments of we'll never go back, things will never have that sort of, I mean, frankly, yellow journalistic uh, national pride, uh, is the Kennedy assassination and then also everything that happens in Watergate. I think yeah. those two things put the, those are the two bullets of, uh, you know, the American dream. And then certainly 9-11 was after that. Because at that point, the idea to, you know, dilute, you get the sense that, okay, well, wait a second, there's a ripple here at the American dream with Kennedy's death. And then Watergate proves that, oh yes, those levers that, you know, we all speculated about, no, they're true. These people yeah. are, are scumbags and they're running, you know, they're, they're running shit behind the scenes. And then, you know, and there's certainly more events after this. I mean, fuck the 80s with Reagan and Iran-Contra. Actually, that's the third one for me. Is yeah. the, the Iran-Contra affair is the is the big one where you go, oh, they're, they're just doing this now openly and they don't yep. care. And, and that's then they tell scary. you, yes. this is, okay, this is such, I'm glad you brought this up. And we're saying all this now so we don't have to say it later, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, but it's basically like, uh, Iran-Contra is a really great example of something that happened before everyone's eyes and mm -hmm. the media and the government told us it wasn't happening. Yeah. And that is, I think what drives a lot of people to conspiracy theories because mm -hmm. we are constantly told that what we see with our own eyes and what we experience in our own lives is, is not true yeah. and that we should just believe institutions when institutions have been proven to disenfranchise the poor and help the rich. And I'm not trying to be, on a soapbox here, but I'll just say like the problem with a lot of conspiracy discourse, probably post 2001 post internet is that a lot of the craziest stuff became a lot more visible. Um, and like stuff did get disproved when it comes to Kennedy. Like I love JFK, the Oliver Stone movie, but the stuff with Clay Shaw is, oh, is, is, yeah. is dicey. And like, that's, you know, I think that wasn't perhaps the best thread for stone to pull. And he admits that now. Like, he does. Yeah. But that's the no. thing is like, you can't, like people are very eager to throw the baby out with the bathwater mm. because of the Clay Shaw stuff. People are like, well, Stone's a crank and that movie's bullshit. And that's, that is bullshit. Yeah. Um, it's like, yes, people are going to get shit wrong. But the thing about a lot of conspiracy uh, researchers that I've spoken to is that they're, they're comfortable with getting stuff wrong. You know what I mean? They don't claim to have all the answers. King acts like he says he's 99% sure of this. Like that's, and he says like anyone who doesn't believe this is crazy. He literally says that. And that, that to me part is, is the problem. It's, yeah. That's what bothers right. me. It's like, yeah. I, I literally probably wouldn't even have done these supplemental interviews if he didn't, if he wasn't so aggressive in mm. the afterward. But I mean, like, and then, you know, I mean, and a lot of this stuff is getting proven now. Like there was a story earlier this year in the New York Times of all places about one of the Secret Service agents talking about the quote unquote magic bullet theory. Like this, there has been more research like since 1122 has come out to, uh, to give more credence to the conspiracy. But I mean, but there's been this like concentrated, this is where I ran contra and other stuff comes in is like, there's been this concentrated effort among quote unquote disinformation researchers who by and large literally just tell you to believe whatever a Democrat politician says. And like many people in these circles, they literally flatten the discourse. Mm -hmm. So everything is QAnon, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, or like they'll, so you can see these charts that disinformation people will pull up and they'll put Iran Contra next and JFK next to QAnon. And they'll be like, well, all of these things, you know, and like, so satanic baby eating is like considered as conspiratorial as like Iran Contra, which is 
a real thing that happened. And it's like very easily provable. But it's like I, I so I feel like this effort that is so um, transparently cynical to stifle information. Um, I mean, that's the thing about Kennedy, too, is there's so many documents that should have been released by now that haven't been released or are still redacted. Well, that's the proof in the pudding right there. I mean, even yeah. with like the shit that was going on with Trump when everyone was so convinced that that's the, you know, the orange psycho- the sociopath was at least, at the very least, he'll give, give us the docs. And then no, even the stuff that we got. Too. Exactly. I mean, th- there is, it, what's, what's astounding here is that that sentiment that King has of just the, well, you know, you're crazy if you believe it, I feel like that didn't really hit the true mainstream culture until like 2016 when a lot of those things started bubbling up and we basically just lost our fucking minds as a society and nothing, there's no truth anymore. It's over in a post-truth, post-science society. And great times we live in. That's why I would would gladly take a a trip back to the 70s and just be able to have the (laughs) comfort of knowing that all that craziness will be 40 or 50 years later. But anyway, so I... I, I say all this just because I, I do think there is this, it, he's almost like weirdly, like it sounds awful, but like he's almost weirdly ahead of the curve in that sentiment because everyone's going towards that area anyway. Because like, you know, as we we discussed with the, the Iran-Contra thing, like that was clear as day. I've, I literally did like multiple dissertations on everything that happened in Nicaragua, um, everything that happened with the Sandinistas and how all that shit was manipulated. And it's all there that you could see that the, the the true source materials that's all, that's all there and i think by 9-11 when you literally have people coming forward saying you know it's like that same the famous condoleezza rice quote it's just like uh, you know we did i believe we got letters that said you know they ta- planned attack you know the world trade center and then you tie that in with a with everything else but then you get kind of blemished with the online culture with like the loose change shit which seems which Honestly, a lot of the stuff in there is interesting. It's curious in the same way that the Kennedy stuff is curious. But we can't but also- just like we can't understand that like sometimes it's about evidence, not yes, conclusions. Exactly. And I think yeah. that's the big thing with the with the researchers that I've spoken with is they don't claim to have a clear answer. They're not Mm-mm. saying Lyndon Johnson was standing on the grassy knoll with a gun. That's not like that's that's <laughs> no, what they But that's I know. But that I know isn't that a funny image? <laughs> just like, like like whoa, what's Johnson doing here? <laughs> <laughs> But like, Which, that's how I think a lot of conspiracy discourse has been framed by yeah. the media and which is basically like, oh, these people think that it was like Satan in a trench coat who pulled the trigger or whatever, or it was, you know, mm-hmm. literally Lyndon Johnson or something like that. When more so it's about gathering evidence that doesn't add up and living in these weird tensions where there aren't any clear answers. Well, and that well, to me is a lot more compelling and a lot more interesting generally than saying, I have read a few books and I believe without a doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Yeah. And that is, yeah. Jen. Totally agree. And I also want to say uh, Lyndon B. Johnson is King's Dominion because Clancy Brown plays him in The Crown. Oh. And as we know, Clancy Brown is from King's Dominion. Interesting. Um, And yeah, I have the crown on the brain, but it's also relates to what we're talking about, because when I think of about like what I find the most interesting about these conspiracy theories, it kind of relates to my my thoughts about true crime. And I think I kind of at some point, maybe it was around the time making a murderer came out. I kind of released myself from having to figure it out. And I remember watching that and was like, you know what? It's not my job to decide what happened here you know it's not evidence you know exactly and i think that but i also think that the conclusions that people come to i think are more interesting to me personally than what actually happened like i am really fascinated by king's 
I, I agree with you. I feel like the shade that he throws on people that don't agree with me, like puts me off. But I think it's really interesting that he says it's scarier to me if it's a lone gunman. And I think that's totally. coming from a, pu- a public figure who has probably had stalker fans. And so to him, maybe the scarier thing is a guy who has a gun just walks up to my house and shoots me. Like yeah. Whereas, Which like, is a true chaos agent. And yeah. I understand exactly. that. Yeah. 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 But also like I'm also coming off of just finishing the last season of The Crown crown um where they cover the death of princess die and so it's really interesting to me that the way they portray that and the the conspira- conspiracy theories i think that they explore and the ones that they don't because that is the story that they are telling and i think that the narrative that king is trying to tell here is that it is the chaos agent is more compelling or more scary and i think narratively i i already have jfk so i can enjoy Mm -hmm. 1122 for this and then i can enjoy jfk for what it is and i don't know if i see the two merging very well and i just have released myself from really having to decide which one I think is true and that way I can really enjoy both which is the know? healthiest way to yeah. go about this <laughs> it really because, is yeah no because I get so worked up about this shit and I wouldn't have if it wasn't for the afterward because yeah. I'm right, like yeah. and that is where it drives me crazy yeah like I, 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 well I was gonna say like it, it does seem too that it's either a conspiracy theory is a social media update like a few sentences or it's a 1200 page tome of too much information and there's nothing in the middle right it's it's either too quick or too much to swallow well that's and especially large now no but that's but like with but specifically with conspiracy theories right like we saw the susceptibility of boomers Mm -hmm. to believing a facebook update even though they warned us you know hey don't believe everything in the internet rebel then (laughs) the ones who fell most they were the most scalable to it versus and i've read a few other uh, JFK conspiracy books and it does at a certain point you get lost in the weeds of like okay you're bringing in there's so much information going on here and especially the fact that it's speculative yeah. you know it's it, it's a lot to digest and process so just going back to the king sort of maybe streamlining it and having it focus more on Oswald than everything else that was going on it, it could have went on for 400 more pages if it really you know at least even acknowledged every thread of what could have happened, right? And, and that's, so, that's so interesting. Maybe that's what because, he's really afraid yeah, of. Yeah. Well, like yeah. what you're saying, like American Tabloid and Libra are great books because they live in the confusion. They live in the weeds, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they don't have answers. They're like, we're going to live in the chaos and not have like one clear ending or solution. Whereas King needed that for his story, which I fully support, you know? But that's, mm-hmm. I think, what makes those other books interesting in their own way. Because there is a version of this where, especially if it's that early '70s version, where let's go back to that that the 2007 pitch that he had, like the radiation poisoning mm-hmm. and going back to stop himself. There is this slightly creep show esque, more Twilight Zone esque uh, sentiment that could have been the story where he has to keep going back and trying to find and test each different conspiracy theory and yeah. going back, and then he's starting to get radiation and he only has enough time to actually do it by then. But we didn't get that book, and instead, uh, I, I'm sorry, Randall, but we've got a few more quotes oh, yeah. uh, that are probably going to burn your uh, your blood well, a little bit. 
let but, me let me run through them and I, yeah. I won't just let me like I'll run through this just so I'm not like derailing anything because yeah, I yeah. Do get worked up about this stuff. But I but I'm going to limit myself. And again, like I said, like you quote this Errol Morris interview. That was actually when I talked to Jim DiEugenio, he actually used that as sort of a structure to discuss the places where he took issue with what King had done. Well, so, read, that, um, read that one quote that I, I pulled out, though, because I think that's a good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, King was ready for the backlash as he told Errol Morris, I'm prepared for trouble when the book comes out. Conspiracy people guard themselves pretty jealously. They have their theories and some of them are pretty complex and some of them are pretty simple. Some of them have been disproved. But one of the things that sticks in my mind is that none of them have been proved. None of them. So it's like UFOs. If they're really UFOs, how come one has never landed or we've never been given definitive proof? I'm not going down that route because then I will (laughs) talk for three hours. Um, That because it's not as if the lone shooter theory has been proven in any way shape or form either so the flattening drives me crazy but also he says conspiracy people guard themselves pretty jealously have you read the afterword yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's yeah. he's every bit as defensive and in that crouch defensive position as many conspiracy theorists are which is like i'm like that is what drives me a little crazy okay morris presses him more though adding Uh, Resolved or unresolved, the mystery of what happened stands behind everything. It is perhaps unavoidable. And ask King uh, why it's become such a persistent uh, storm of mystery. So King said, well, the reason is, I would say, because Ruby shot Oswald. And when Ruby shot Oswald, he shut his mouth. He permanently silenced him. So there was never any light cast from that standpoint. As a result, you have all these witnesses who stepped forward who saw this and saw that and saw guys on the grassy knoll and this and that and the other thing. It's a little bit like the blind man describing the elephant. One's got the trunk and says it's a snake and one's got a leg and says it's a tree one's got an ear and says it's a banana plant they all say different things because none of them can see the whole thing the only one who could really tell us what happened is dead i'm not saying he would have but i think he would have i believe he would have if he did it and i do think he did it and i think that's actually a very valid quote because that is Mm -hmm. very true about how we look at history and how uh the minute an event has concluded or you know the people who are involved are no longer around there is no way to get answers you know what i mean and so but i think like for me the natural result is to approach it with curiosity rather than uh a kind of closed-minded here's the answer i'm going to accept but Mm -hmm. i think sometimes we want answers so i think you know especially as we get older we don't want to live in that state of of uh unknowing you know Mm -hmm. and i think that's really I think there's comfort in that. There's comfort in the idea that it was just one guy. There's also terror in the idea that it was one guy. But I think sometimes, like, having an answer is preferable. Um, and there's a lot of answers that are available for all of us. There, um, yeah, there so. are. So there, they do address this early on in the section that we we're covering today, um, which is the watershed moment. Uh, on page 66 of my paperback, now, well, don't worry, I have the first edition. Uh, I was around for it. Uh, but <laughs> I, I bought the paperback because, you know, I want to underline things. And yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was to, worried, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't I, worry. Know, I, I wanted to see a blue duck and I drew a blue duck. But um, <laughs> so on, on page 66, you know, they they talk about the conspiracy theories of Jake and, and, and Al. It said, Manchester said that if you put the murdered president on one side of the scale in Oswald, the wretched waif on the other, it didn't balance. No way did it balance. If you wanted to give Kennedy's death some meaning, you'd have to add something heavier, which explains the proliferation of conspiracy theories, like the mafia did it, Carlos Marcello ordered the hit, or the KGB did it, or Castro to get back at the CIA for loading, for trying to load him up with poison cigars. There are people to this day who believe Lyndon Johnson did it. Hey, that's me. Uh, so he could be president. But in the end, Al shook his head. 
it was almost certainly Oswald. You've heard of Occam's razor, haven't you? And the Occam's razor thing is, is certainly a principle that King leans on in a lot of these interviews and talking about, you know, sometimes it's just, that's the, the clearest answer is right there. It's, it's just, you know, it's right there at the day. And I, it's only you know, the clearest answer because that was the narrative we were given. If you actually yeah. like consider the fact, yeah. are we really supposed to believe that Oswald shot six rounds from yeah. that particular rifle or no three rounds in that, from that particular rifle in six seconds? That mm-hmm. is not the most, that is not the clearest answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that it, it, it pushes the strains of reality. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's like what drives me a little crazy. It's only Occam's razor. Because that is the official narrative. Yeah. And look, again, this is a good way to button it up because I think that we know that there's the context out there. And that's something I think we all really wanted to stress on this episode, first and foremost, and certainly one we want to explore in the episodes that Randall's going to be, uh, the interviews that Randall's has done. And that I think that's an area that I, we couldn't do this series without actually at least acknowledging all that stuff. I think we all agree that the streamlining it with Oswald certainly made this a far more enjoyable tale. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we're going to move on a little bit, but we've got a little bit more to talk about the research. So in addition to visiting areas uh, like in Dallas and also watching the Zapruder video or, you know, the, the videos of Kennedy, you know, King also drew from memory, you know, after all, he was born in 1947, so he lived in the 50s and 60s, and the writing process for him unlocked a lot of those feelings and images uh, from that memory warehouse, uh, including the assassination itself. Uh, Fleer, why don't you read the story uh, he told to the Scotsman in 2011? It's a really- Hi, Scots- Scotsman. Happy to do it. <laughs> Trying to quote my grandma, or great-grandma from Scotland. Are you Scotland. Scottish? I'm, yes. Oh. Crush you like a worm. It's my favorite quote from Braveheart. Braveheart. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was in a converted hearse. I lived in a little tiny town. Think of a little tiny town in Scotland with all the dirt roads. And there was no high school. There was a grammar school, but it was just four rooms. We had to pick a high school that was nearby and there was no bus. So a bunch of parents clubbed together and hired this guy who converted a hearse into a half-assed limousine. And there were nine or 10 of us who went back forth 14 miles to the nearest high school. I'm assuming the driver he's talking about here. He says he was this real quiet guy who never heard the radio. We hated that because we all loved rock and roll. It was the early 60s, and only two times that radio ever went on was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then one day when we got out of school, we got in the car and the radio was on, and we were grab-assing around the way kids are at the end of the school day. And this guy came on and said, the president is dead, and there was just total silence. And what I remember best is that Mike, the driver who never said anything, He wouldn't say shit if he had a mouthful. He said, they will kill the son of a bitch who did it if they catch him. And they caught him and somebody killed him, sure enough. Yeah. It's pretty keen insight. Yeah. Jack Ruby issue. I I do love the... the King was so good at at creating moments within the moments. Mm -hmm. You know, like what I remember best. Like that's, that's just born storyteller right there. So I just, I I, I don't know. Like that's just caught me in my, in that quote. Um, so he also, you know, King also talked to Footman. Uh, who who would have known this Tesco blogs interview became so imperative to our to our research here? It's how totally. uh, great. Hey, that's just a, a sign that uh, spread the wealth when it comes to interviews. You know, mm-hmm. that, I'm talking to PR agents out there, PR agents who are listening <laughs> to the Losers Club <laughs> discussed 1122. Anyway, um, he he talked to to Footman about how the the you know 
the the pro the process of this book offered some time traveling for himself. So he said, uh, actually, Jen, why don't you take this one? Okay. I've talked way too much. So. The act of writing is almost an act of hypnosis. You can remember things that are not immediately accessible to the conscious mind. I felt extremely challenged as I began this book. Could I really capture the sense of what it was like to live between 1958 and 1963? By writing, like anything imaginative, is an act of faith. You have to believe that those details will be there when you need them. The more I wrote about those years, the more I remembered. I used research when I fell short, but it was amazing how much came back to me. The sound coins made when you dropped them into the machine when you got on the bus, the smell of movie theaters when everybody was smoking, the dances, the teenage slang, books that were current, and the importance of the library and research. Now, I'm a big believer in research. My entire life was dedicated to it, and that's why these episodes are fucking long and my scripts are ridiculous. But uh, I do think that experience is a big deal. And I know that so much, especially in academic discourse about especially controversial topics, now the the, the de facto way of hearing about it is through someone who has an experience on that. And I, and I think that there's value in that for sure. I think you, you, know, you certainly need that. But again, I, I think if you can find the right sources and research, I think there's, there's ways that someone can, can extrapolate on something that happened in history. Uh, having said that, I do want to talk about experience for a second because I want to see when you're reading this book, especially the first 100 pages, especially that glimpse of the 50s, does this seem like it's coming from someone who actually was able to live there? Like, could someone have kind of had some of those uh, insights just kind of looking at magazines, maybe seeing that certain things like, is there a, is there an, an inherent quality to the writing that we've read so far where you get the idea that, oh yeah, King, King certainly knows what he's fucking talking about here. Yeah, I Can think I, so. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I, I, there, there is a touch of this. I think we're all born in the 80s or around then, but there's a way the 80s are portrayed where it's neon colors, whereas it actually was mostly browns and mm -hmm. like ashtrays and McDonald's. So Wood paneling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like so King he experienced the 50s but he wasn't you know, he was a kid still. So I think there is a little bit of it being idealized, right? But to me like the detail that brings it is like they're getting the root beer. Mm -hmm. And just this idea of like it's not alcohol but you go there, you pay it's like a nickel for a root beer and it's just that taste and the sweet to me that's kind of when I locked in and was like, okay, I'm I'm around for this. Like I like this way that he's portraying it. Yeah, because it's not like a summation of the 50s. It's like his experience. And that's what I think I really connect to with the story. Like, the more that I think about it, and as I'm looking through all of this research, like, I don't think that I would be a historian. I think it would be more like an anthropologist. Like, I am more interested in the individual experiences and how those kind of run, the, the currents that run through all of that. And I think that's what really sings in this novel, which I think is another kind of, um, reason I, I like the lone gunman thing for this story. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that King is really, really good at just in general, part of why I really like his, his writing so much. And I like that we have a really strong mix of the two of these in the story. Uh, GQ... I think the research could easily get really dry. Sorry, Mike. Yeah. What, what does GQ think? Is that Rosa? Uh, oh, this is GQ on my lap right now. And oh. he, uh, he loves the, he loves root beer himself. So he also loved the sections where King was drinking 50s root beer. <laughs> That's, so right now for, for our listeners, Randall's holding uh, his new dog. And so uh, I did want to ask, you know, Marley and me, big, big <laughs> novel. Was the dog's <laughs> point of view appropriately written? GQ, what do you think? 
GQ says uh, he prefers the movie uh, of Marley oh. and Me because oh. he's a big Owen Wilson fan. <laughs> That's a hot but, take, GQ. But he, yeah, but he, you know, but he says the the book is adequately rendered, or yeah. at least the dog's perspective. Yeah. yeah, he said it's good for a human. Oh, not bad, not bad. Thanks, GQ. He, he prefers the Kojak chapter of the stand. Oh. oh yeah, hey, a lot of us do, you know. Yeah. Does he also like the meeting notes though? Because that's uh, G meeting notes. Oh, he's actually that's looking it. at the mic. Oh my he god. Is. He said Look, that's he a said, yes. Uh, he said he <laughs> finds the the meeting notes interesting, but wishes that there wasn't so much sex uh, yeah. interspersed <laughs> throughout it. That's true. More Cujo, less yeah. sex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he does love Cujo. So, speaking on experience, the novel also starts off in Lisbon Falls which is a very real place and also close to King's heart. Uh, an online writer by the name of Sister Mary Murderess has some Ooh. pretty stellar insight into this in her review on the Read Me Deadly blog. Uh, she writes, Lisbon Falls is very real. Most of the places and institutions King describes actually existed and some still do. The war, the war, the war rumbo oh, mill. Rumbo. War rumbo. rumbo. Rumbo meal. Okay. okay. <laughs> meal. Meal. That's a re- very weird word to be it's a, fair. It's well, a weird. Rumbo meal. Jen, Jen, can you say war rumbo? War rumbo mill. Okay. But you, know yes. what? You, re- you read the rest of this because I clearly can't read for shit. So <laughs> okay. go for it. I just want to thank Craig Wasson who has been reading the audiobook that I'm listening to. He nails war rumbo every time. Um, the row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> the Warumbo Mill, St. Cyril's, the Kennebec Fruit Company, the Lisbon Enterprise Newspaper, the Jolly White Elephant, the Red and White Grocery Store, the Hi-Hat Drive-In, Bomber's Barbershop, Dunton's Jewelry and the Holly, and many of the people he places in Lisbon Falls are or were real, like Frank An- Anasetti, senior and junior, former and current proprietors of the Kennebec Fruit Company, John Gould, former editor of the Lisbon Enterprise, and many others. Durham, Maine, across from the Androscoggin River from Lisbon Falls and went to Lisbon High School. He was a high school reporter from the Lisbon Enterprise. He worked for a time at the Warumbo Mill. And like Jake, he had a credential to teach English. He this probably is King, hated- by the way. I, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry, I fu- sorry. I fucked up by, by not including the fact that, yeah, so King was, you know, was He probably right hated the hi-hat. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> that was my Mike King impression. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh, no, no, sorry, but I'm saying, like, the, the she's talking about King for the Durham, Maine stuff. So, oh, yeah, oh, okay. Like, he he pro- so King yeah. probably ate at the hi-hat, got his hair cut at Bomber's, and brought groceries at the Red and White. I won't speculate about whether he frequented the Holly, a dive bar, and one-time strip club. <laughs> well, where do you think King- he got the name? I think King broke from his prior practice in using a real location, Lisbon Falls, so that he would could acknowledge the part the town's places and people played in his life. Yeah, that's cool. I, I think that's, that's really a lot cool. of words. Yeah. Well, the reason why I found this is because there's a another King's Dominion that involves Dunton later on that I I just was like, wait a second. There's moments in this book where I've been underlining certain things to see like this. I got to look this up. So I was yeah. It was I was charmed to see, especially having gone to Bangor where we see so much of it becoming dairy mm-hmm. through Jamie's tour to be able to see that actually he's working in reality here and some of these characters were real. It's cool. I mean, that that's fucking awesome. Like the, the Anacetti, yeah. the, the, the Anacetti, Anacetti, and it, that's yeah, Anacetti. Anacetti is what Craig Wasson says. Okay, cool, cool. Well, and then I'm going to go with Bill Maher. And Craig Wasson so. would never lie. He would, he would never, never lie. lie. <laughs> you know, 
especially not to Freddy Krueger. No. <laughs> or in Ghost Story. Uh, so yeah, th- I mean, imagine being part of that family and just knowing that like your his- the history of your store and you know. It'd be funny if they made them look like assholes. Though. Yeah, just like. <laughs> It's like he comes over. It's just like, oh, man, Anasetti is at it again. He's like, mm. Anasetti's just like, he's like r- saying racist shit all throughout yeah. the book. <laughs> right. He's like, like got a basement murder yeah. children's room. Yeah. 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 <laughs> he, or then like he makes the Anasetti kind of like Kings of Man. It's like, uh, Anasetti had a, a, a young boy that he adopted, a boy named Frank Dodd. Um, oh, <laughs> just like, what? Randall Flatter. She's just like, keep your distance from old man Anasetti. He's got, he's got grabby hands. You know? <laughs> We're just joking. It didn't happen. This is all history uh yeah. not history i should say uh it's alternative history <laughs> yeah and well, speaking of alternative history let's let's talk about the time travel for a second so in 2011 king spoke to wired of course it's wired about the mechanics of time travel uh i'm gonna try to read this one in my my best doc brown voice uh okay. the, 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 there's a kind of rule that you'd express as a ratio the the more potential a given event has to change the future the more difficult that event would be to change if you if you wanted to go back and speak to somebody on a street corner so that they were five minutes late to an appointment that, that might not be too hard but if you wanted to stop the assassination of a president that would be really difficult marty uh i just have to add the marty <laughs> because i this doesn't sound anything like that doc no brown. i thought it did um, i thought it was great the the past would try to protect itself Marty. Uh, so that's that's kind of the, the the mantra for just where he was getting at for how he was going to look at the mechanics of the time travel but he also brings up the butterfly effect and uh king has an answer for well the interview brings up the, the butterfly effect and king has an answer for it so dan um i want you to do your best ashton kutcher uh, voice. I, I don't. I want a yes and for my improv training, but I actually really <laughs> am not familiar with Ashton Kutcher's voice at all. Okay, he was good in Vengeance, which I saw recently, but I never watched that '70s show. So oh, can I also do Doc Brown. Yeah, is hmm. that a fair? Yeah, go for it. Try um, to do Doc Brown. Let's see what you can do. Okay, I'll try to do Doc Brown. It's hard. The butterfly effect has a part in it, but my thought was that every time you go back and change something, you create an alternate timeline. There are these guardians who stand over you, watch like all the time portals, because they understand that whenever you go back, you damage the space-time continuum. At the end, Jake meets one of them who tells him, every time you do this, you make the situation worse. <laughs> and if you continue to do it, everything collapses. To me, that's pretty horrible. Sorry, I, that's my best. I, I, it was, was good. It was it. good. There was a little bit of Christopher Walken in there, which is fitting, because, oh, you know, yeah. hey, King's Dominion, <laughs> dead zone. Um, also, he was, he, you know, at one point, Christopher Walken was going to be Han Solo, which is kind you of You got to control the himself. pace. I, the, but yeah. the butterfly effect has a part in it. Butterfly effect. <laughs> um, okay, so one of my favorite aspects of this novel were, is, you know, the mechanics of tide traveling here. is I think it's really smart. I love the two-minute jaunt. I love the idea that everything resets upon returning back. I just think it's a really smart way to do this trope. And I and I am I'm big on time travel stories. Like, give me a, any time travel story, even the Guy Pierce remake. I, I'm all I'm all in. Um, I gotta say, he, like, I actually, I came around on the time travel a little bit because yeah. I think at first I kind of laughed at how simplistic it was, like where it just kind of, it was just easy because he's like, oh no, it just resets every time. I don't know why I'm not going to, you know, like Al's always like, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. don't ask me these questions. I don't have any answers, you know? And it's like, yeah. it's like, oh, okay. You're just trying to kind of make it easy on yourself. And I don't mind that because it is, it allows for more, I think just an easier like it's a vessel to tell a bigger story that isn't really about time travel ultimately. Um, all, but then the kind of trick of the end is you realize, oh no, all of these things did matter mm-hmm. because early, earlier, early on, you're like, 
oh, okay, well, if if everything just resets every time you go, then I guess nothing really ultimately matters. Mm-hmm. But then you realize, oh, no, it's all it, – it, there is an accumulation. It's just not one that we can necessarily see. And I – like it's a more like, you know – uh, multiversal kind of thing. And that to me mm-hmm. is a really neat trick that King they, plays. There's a really oh, good right. parallel to that in the Wired interview because uh, he says, the idea of the reset was one of the more interesting things about the book to me. You can get the idea from computers where you can delete all this material and start over again and it never even leaves a mark. You just highlight everything, bop, delete, and it's gone. And the the author in the, the Wired article, because of course, uh, was like, well, actually it doesn't get deleted. Uh, well, as actually, we know, now, actually, um, I, well, the Windows 95 processor uh, <laughs> doesn't. Um, Do you know like Matt Grass Tyson interviewing him? Yeah, not so fast. <laughs> not so fast, even. Uh, but yeah, he he basically points out that like no, it exists somewhere, and then that's when King's like, yes, that's that's where the ending comes into fruition. Is that like all this stuff is backed up somewhere, and someone has to hold on to it. And yeah. when you do think about that, it's it is kind of adds a little bit more pathos to one certain character the, we'll talk about. the card men like being driven insane. By yeah, like, <laughs> ah! <laughs> no! I got no! a job. <laughs> Just like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> it's like he's holding on to this, the strings of time. Uh, do we think we were more sus- susceptible to the time travel devices here because of the Dark Tower? I mean, Fleer, you've read all the Dark Tower up at this point, right? Like, because you devoured... I skimmed them. Cliff notes. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. No, yeah, no, I've, I've read, yeah, I've, I've pretty much read all the materials, but I, I know what you're saying, and even that is like interdimensional with yeah. time travel, so it makes it complicated. Did it seem when you were reading this for the first time and you didn't even blink an eye, it was just like, oh yeah, this seems like it's, it's in King's Dominion? I, 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 I think you could do a whole novel on the mechanics of time travel, but it's just easier to accept it and be like, you go here, you come back, it's two minutes have passed. Yeah. You know, versus every single time a character encounters it, it's like, well, wait, can you explain this to me? Which is yeah. what, if you want to get, you know, that that's a too technical to be interesting. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I I'm like, if somebody says this happens, you use the word jaunt earlier. Yeah. We don't fully understand the mechanics of the jaunt. We know that scientists researched it. It's the effects that are interesting. So I think with this, the effects of the time travel are more interesting than the actual mechanics or explanation of it. Does that make sense? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, that's it, it, once you know the the formula or at least just the the overview of the mechanics, it does make it that much more easier. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking of an alternative version of this where it's like the movie Primer where you're just like constantly uh, just like going into right. the nitty gritty of things and I'd be Love like, Primer. fuck. Exactly. I do too. It's a great movie, but you're right. It, it's It gets so too, it's not... I wouldn't rewatch that movie. You yeah. know what I mean? I've yeah. seen it three times for some reason, probably because it's <laughs> only like 80 minutes, but it's like, that's a really fun movie in terms of uh, that. It gets so into the weeds yeah. that that becomes its hook, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it. Like Corey and I used to joke when we were watching sons of anarchy, cause we just did not care about the, cl- the clubs inner dynamics. So we oh, just totally. like, it's I something agree. with the Mayans, you know, yeah. that's what the business is. So that that's every time I encounter this time travel thing, I'm like, it's something with the Mayans. It's the Mayans. What's yeah. your favorite time travel movie or device or book or, you know, mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, aside from this, which probably is it, um, back to the future. Yeah. 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 It's hard to go wrong there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What is and it? it's got a Jennifer in it, so you know. That's true. I, I also I saw Back to the Future two before I saw Back to the Future one as a kid. I think I might have too. Yeah. Were you, you probably must have like, been so confused? I, I know. I know. Like, like who is? Well, they kind of recap the, the first movie. Dance? I know. I'm kind of totally kidding. Like, <laughs> yeah, when you're but, young but too, I, I watched I, Return of the Jedi like a hundred times before I ever watched the first two Star Wars. Movies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Dude, I saw Jaws three before any of them. So. 
Are you fucking kidding me? Jaws three before Jaws? Like it yeah, was on TV it was all on, the time. That was, is yeah. wild. That yeah. that is. I'm trying to yes. think of what's a worse sequel to start off with. Like, hmm. like uh, I guess like, you did Hellraiser Bloodlines, Terminator yeah. Genesis, <laughs> Terminator. That's yeah. right. Terminator Fair enough. Genesis. That is the, that is the worst one they start off with. Uh, all right, I want to talk about the date, September 9th, nineteen fifty-eight. Do we have any theories on why? This is the exact date that that King chose. I mean, I couldn't find any quotes as to why he did, uh, other than the fact that, like, you know, the headline that Jake runs into on the Globe is "Dulles hints concessions if Red China Dulles. renounces a Dulles, yeah, Dulles hints concessions if Red China renounces use of force in Formosa." I, I just I, it could I, have I, been I, as simple as like trying to by choosing that headline, trying to show that there was geopolitical strife like in the world that Jake was entering into to, I think maybe help shatter, like you mentioned earlier, Flieger, like to maybe help shatter a little bit of the idyllic nature. Um, But I don't have like a big theory as to why this day, maybe the day has some kind of like personal meaning to him. Yeah, I do. Formosa was like a Republic of Taiwan, I think in like turn of the century. Yeah. Yeah. This is when I like to get my conspiracy theory hat on, is to Do try it. to figure out what King is thinking when he has written every sentence that he's ever written. So my theory, and I could be completely wrong, but I think, so in Dance Macabre, he talks about a pivotal moment in his life when he was at the movies, mm. and the movie announcer came in and said Sputnik had just launched, and that was 1957. It was not 1958, but I bet he maybe had originally had him go back to 1957 and then maybe as he was editing it was like hey if I put it in 1958 I can do the it thing you know mm. and so he changed it to 1958 also isn't his birthday in September it is yeah and 9th is kind of like 19 and I think he just happened to find this headline that kind of does what we all think it does and I agree with that but I think it was just a happy coincidence so that's that's my conspiracy I like that I I have I co-sign yeah I did too especially (laughs) because it does allow him to do which you know for those that are actually reading with us (laughs) yeah (laughs) and hasn't read the book you know and you're like all right I'm gonna I'm gonna get to the first 97 pages um you know we already mentioned dairy so I'm sorry, you know, shit happens, but it's, it's, Derry is in this book. So just get ready. So it does make sense that there would be a Nick connection. Uh, I went back and looked at all the stuff that was happening in 1958 leading up to this date. Uh, so here's where America was at on this date. The president is Dwight D. Eisenhower. The vice president is Richard Nixon. The chief justice is Earl Warren. In January, the first successful American satellite, Explorer 1, is launched into orbit. In February, Ruth, Keller, Ruth Carol Taylor is the first African-American woman hired as a flight attendant uh, working for Mohawk Airla- Airlines. Her career only lasts six months due to another discriminatory barrier, the airline's ban on married flight attendants. What? what are we I know. Doing it's a strange. I know. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but you know. Lots of things founded though. Uh, so in March, Warner Brothers Records, the company which would later become Warner Records, is founded by its namesake, which would eventually release Gary Doberman's Salem's Lot. That's true. Oh. Yeah, Warner Brothers Pictures, oh, this, this which is the home of uh, a lot of the King stuff too. So. Or not release it. I guess. Or not release it. We'll uh-huh. see. You know, uh, <laughs> the same month, the USS Wisconsin is decommissioned. And it left the U.S. Navy without an active battleship for the first time what since if 1898. Went back in time? I'm sorry. 
Yeah, go for somebody it. went back in time to prevent the release of Dauberman's Salem's Lot, and that's uh, why we don't have. Don't it blow yet. up! Don't blow up my game, John. <laughs> or <laughs> stop Miss Taylor from getting married. Yeah, uh, it'll be nine nine twenty two twenty three. Yeah, right. Exactly. And you just go back, and when they they probably made a formal discussion about it. Anyway, sorry, um, Mike. I didn't mean to no, no, it's it. totally fine. Um, by April, unemployment in Detroit reaches twenty percent, marking the height of the recession of nineteen fifty eight in the in the United States. So there was a recession going on. Um, this is wild. So that same month, the San Francisco Giants beat the Los Angeles Dodgers eight to zero at San Francisco Seals. Stadium in the first Major League Baseball regular season game ever played in California. Wow. Uh, so that's wild. Oh, 1958. I thought that was pretty late. California's big. Uh, also big is the Pizza Hut chain, which <laughs> opened its first uh, so restaurant in Wichita, Kansas in June of 19 or June 15th of 1958. Uh, I, I can't tell what's what's more important. So Pizza Hut was in June, but in July, the U.S. Congress formally created uh, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Uh, NASA, ever heard of that? Yeah. So, well, if you're looking at who has been more successful, maybe Pizza Hut. That's know. that is true. You know, um, I, they had a commercial in the movie theater last night for Pizza Hut, and I was just like, God, what the fuck happened to this brand? Like, I, I know. <laughs> it's food probably worst. tastes better on the space shuttle at this point. It, I know <laughs> it's so uh, gross. Uh, anyway, this episode is sponsored by our friends by at Pizza, Pizza Hut. Hut. <laughs> uh, you know. Wings? We're responsible for Domino's. We're like, make sure to shit on Pizza Hut yeah. in our history. So. I, hey, look, the salad bar? Just yeah. come in. Yeah. There are these things called Pizza Hut Classics that are all around. And talk about time traveling. I'd like to go to one of those. Oh. Unfortunately, I, don't, I think the food still tastes the same as the modern dime. So no good. Um, Tim Robbins, who is in the Shawshank Redemption, King's Dominion. He was in a movie called The Hud Circle Proxy. And he, he says uh, it's a toy, right? with the hula hoop. I believe it's the hula hoop in that movie, right? Yeah. So that same month that NASA was created, July 1958, the hula hoop was first marketed. So how about that? Ooh. You can get a hula hoop in 1958 and look up to the stars and see the satellites. Uh, so then in August, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed the Federal Aviation Act of 1958, transferring all authority over aviation in the U.S. to the newly created Federal Aviation Agency, FAA, later renamed Federal Aviation Administration. So we got NASA, the FAA, uh, Pizza Hut, <laughs> first ball game in the West Coast. And then in September, the University of New Orleans begins classes as the, as the first racially integrated public university in the Southern United States. So that's the pretty much the, the beginning, I believe, of what the, the 60s are going to you know lead on to. But more importantly than anything, and more importantly, even than the than September 11th, 2001. In September 11th of 1958, uh, two days after Jake arrives in Lisbon Falls, 1958, the world got uh, actor Scott Patterson. Uh, Is that Strom from Strom? Strom, Strom from Saw. Strom and Luke from Gilmore, Gilmore Girls. Girls. So yeah. I think that was pretty He'll important. Always be Strom. It's Strom. Strom is born. And we get NASA and we get Pizza Hut and we get the hula hoop. And we, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, yeah. Pop culture wise, some iconic movies released in 1958. And all right, film historians. I know that there's more, but these are the ones I pulled out. <laughs> these are big ones. So Touch of Evil. Good movie. Vertigo. Yeah. Gigi. Don't know it. South <laughs> no Pacific. <opinion. laughs> uh, Cat in a Hat 
cat on a hot tin roof. Not to well, be mistaken. Well, that that is just, a good movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Um, well, it's based on a very famous play. Um, Na- a Dr. Seuss mashup of that. Though, yeah. Cat in a hat tin roof. With Mike Myers somehow in it. No, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, he's reprising. <laughs> that is his the role. kind of thing Mike Myers would parody in like a cat. Um, yeah, yeah. In his his glory days. Uh, some popular music released in 1958. So much out there, and King is really insistent on talking about how this was like pre-Beatles. And in one of the interviews, he speculates whether or not I think it's the Perota interview. Uh, he talks about like how we never, you know, John F. Kennedy never got to hear the Beatles, and that actually like saddened King. And then they were trying to discuss like if Robert F. Kennedy liked the Beatles, and they asked the crowd. It's it's a, it's a nice little moment, but the Beatles were no long. They they weren't here. In this moment, in fact, I think Paul McCartney in this year did his first concert in Liverpool uh, alone. But in 1958, people were listening to Valer by Dom- Domenico Ma- Maduno. Domenico Maduno. Valar. That's like it was like the number one hit of that year. It was all over the place. If you listen to it, you'll you'll know what it is. They had hmm. there's also uh, Come Dance with Me uh, by Nice Guy Frank Sinatra, uh, <laughs> Lollipop by the Cordettes. King's Dominion. Stand by me. Stand by me. Yeah. All I Have to Do is Dream by the Everly Brothers, oh, one of my first that. concerts. R.I.P. Yeah. Uh, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis, who is uh, also King's Dominion because it plays in Stand By Me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe Baby by the by Buddy Holly. Uh, Elvis Presley's Don't, The Champs Tequila, used great with Paul Rubens in uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Wow, that's a, that song's older than I thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm surprised by that one. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure they used the original one in... Pee-wee. I don't know if it's like some modernized version of it. I think it is this original one. I like anyway. that you have Chucky Berry. I know. I, I that was a. I think my um, because we're you doing the Chucky, Chucky season. On the brain. My well, also, my AI does for sure. A song but, called yeah. "Sweet Sixteen by Chuck Berry is a little bit uncomfortable in retrospect. Uh-huh. It really is. Yeah. Um, but one yeah, of my favorite made some great music. He yeah. did make some. Also, great Back to the, the Future. future I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> hey, you got, you know that new sound you're looking for? Well, listen yeah. to this. This uh, is it. So and we, we all remember a sixteen-year-old girl. Sorry, <laughs> it's like let me write this. Um, and then, last but not least, I had to put the the monotones, the book of love, which is uh, also in Stand by Me. So oh, I like that song. Good stuff. Good good times. What would you have listened to the most? Do you think out of that? What would have been your? Uh, what would be on your Spotify Wrapped? Nineteen fifty-eight. Yeah. Would you have done the dance like every time you listen to it, like like Kiwi does? I, all I have to do is dream. I remember from Ladybugs. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's Ladybugs. where I know it. I do like oh, that. Oh, Jonathan Brandis. Hey, King's Dominion. Yeah. 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 R.I.P. King. Also, yeah. weirdly, King's Dominion, because through Rodney Dangerfield in that movie, he also worked with Keith Gordon in Back Lee. to School, <laughs> which, uh, you know, anyway. Firestarter. I think Rodney's probably kicking around this time. He has to be. So maybe he's around in yeah. 1958. He's um, his I think he's probably too. selling aluminum siding. He was in a handball <laughs> league with my grandpa in Brooklyn, Rodney really? Dangerfield. He's was in he my really? grandpa's wow. yearbook playing handball together. Was, was he, he funny? good at handball? <laughs> hey, I'll tell you what. I got no respect <laughs> on the handball court. I could, I could see him just being like, he's like, hey, why don't you lay off on the, the hand there? Why don't you, you, you know, you yeah. use your hand for something else. Uh, more uh, hand, less handball. What if what if uh, Rodney Dangerfield was the, the the genesis for Jake Epping? It's just like, oh, you're gonna go oh, back to the fifties. Like, what a hey, my wife told me to go back in time, but I only lasted two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> or he's like, he walks into that that grocery store. And he's just like, all right, I'll have a little, uh, some naked teas and some uh, some pa- a pound of meat and. Hey, bang, don't tell me you're Jewish. One of these. <laughs> 
Uh, it's the fifties. Don't tell him. Yeah, don't tell him you're uh, you're Jewish. Don't tell him you're Jewish. Hey. Oh, um, sit on a duck. Does someone sit? <laughs> <It's> my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Love Caddyshack. It's it great looks film. good on you though. It's wild to think that when Jake goes back to the fifties, if you'd waited even beyond nineteen sixty-three, you could have gone to the first run of Caddyshack. You know, twenty-something oh, yeah. years later, I, I, I certainly would. Not not killed. Oswald, so I, I know. Can see you. Yeah, you <laughs> back on and wait screen. 20 years for a movie's release. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have done it. I would have done it because I would have. I'm go sure to... you would have. Yeah, it would have been great. You're like, um, Gremlins 2 is coming out in a few decades. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, let's talk about the promotion just to, to wrap this all up. So, remember all that talk about the rebranding for King? Well, the Wall Street Journal, in that same piece I referenced five hours ago on this episode, uh, <laughs> they offered a fairly comprehensive rundown of the marketing campaign, which, as I mentioned earlier, too, King. Uh, helped piece together for Scribner. Essentially, they really were targeting history buffs with the book giveaway, with book giveaway promotions on bio.com and history sites. And to reach news junkies, uh, Scribner actually bought ad time on 11 p.m. news programs in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. They also secured spots to run on the CNN at airport network and on the A&E and sci-fi channels. I love that sci-fi gets thrown in there. It's like, mm. I don't know if that many history It was spelled different back in the day, too. It was, it was actually sci-fi, like yeah. science fiction. And it's and it's funny, too, because it's like uh, the, the history uh, channel has become sci-fi. So um, that's all they talk about is just what the, the what-ifs and aliens. I There was an ad that was around. There was like a 30-second commercial that featured archival footage of Kennedy's Dallas motorcade. And there's like a voiceover that says, like, what if instead of just changing history? Or no. Fuck, I fucked that up. <laughs> what if instead of just watching history, you could change it? I remember actually seeing this commercial a lot. Uh, and I do actually recall a lot of this promo. Uh, does anyone else, do, do you remember when this was, did this feel like an event? I mean, King was obviously on our minds because we were somewhat constant readers at that point. But do you recall like feeling like this felt more like an event than the other books? I do. I, I remember him on Good Morning America giving yeah. an interview about it. Yeah. And I think actually this might have been the time that I started my chronological reread too. Mm. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember I remember this feeling weightier than other yeah. releases. Yeah. A lot of King books, you know, I think you would just go to a bookstore and suddenly, oh shit, there's a new King, you know? Yeah. Exactly. Like even, yeah. even as a big fan, that would happen. Because I didn't, you know, back then it wasn't as easy, I think, to track like when stuff was being released. Yeah. Or I didn't follow the forums. I didn't go to his website. You know, I loved him, but I was just never that kind of fan. And then, uh, so I think, but I remember the lead up to this one and I got it pretty soon after it came out. So Yeah, I, I, I don't remember ever seeing a King commercial other than Maximum doing Overdrive. research for this podcast, but <laughs> my library had the 14-day new releases right when you walked in. So that's the first thing I remember seeing is like several hardcover copies at the library. I, I just, I remember hearing about other well i guess it's to to the credit of this marketing campaign i just remember hearing about other people reading this book that i never would have in a million years guessed that they were like king Same. readers which is i guess the impetus of this whole campaign um but this is something that king definitely doesn't really do anymore so to promote the book king wanted a book tour um and it was themed to the book with appearances at the john f kennedy presidential library and uh, which we referenced with the Proto interview earlier and, and throughout this episode. Uh, he went to the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, um, the site that Oswald fired from. And then he also visited the museum in Boston, which I still think he would do because he could drive there. Because uh, let's just say he has a, a fear of flying, which we've learned over the years. And wonders that's why he doesn't do as, as many appearances around the nation anymore. We talked a little bit, I mean, we talked already earlier about the insistence on this kind of marketing. So I don't think we need to go back to it. But Let's talk about when the, you know, the reviews that, that came out of it, you know, in November 8th, 
2011, the book arrived, which is kind of funny because you'd think that like, all right, you're in November already. <laughs> yeah, just wait right. a few weeks. Let's yeah. do 11:22. But anyway, uh, Randall, you have some yeah, reviews and takes on this. Just a few uh, brief things. They were mostly positive. Uh, the New York Times named it one of the five best fiction books of the year. Las Vegas Review Journal called it one of uh, King's best novel in more than a decade. Um, it was, you know, lauded by NPR. Um, and then uh, who else? Like pretty much everyone mostly liked it. The Houston Chronicle called it one of the, one of King's best books in a long time. Um, people did say it was a bit long, you know, which I think is, uh, pretty common. Um, and, uh, a couple of quotes I thought were notable in the New York Times review, Janet Maslin, who kind of became, I think like one of King's champions at Absolutely. the New York Times. Still because, is too. Yeah. yeah. And like, cause he does a lot of interviews with her when we were doing under the dome, he did a really big interview with her and she was like very taken with under the dome. Uh, and I think was very interested in what King represented in culture around this time. So this is uh, from her review of 1122. She said, Mr. King's books have a far stronger real world component than they used to, even when he deals with premises rooted in science fiction. And he has lately written with more heart and soul, leaving the phantasmagorical grisliness behind. Perhaps it's the gravity of the Kennedy assassination that makes this new book so well-grounded. But in any case, 112263 does not lay on the terror tricks. Mr. King's description of America in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis fearing imminent nuclear annihilation is at least as scary as anything he's ever made up. And then um, uh, in the LA Times, there's also this quote that I like. Uh, Throughout his career, King has explored fresh ways to blend the ordinary and the supernatural. His new novel imagines a time portal in a main diner uh, that lets an English teacher go back to 1958 in an effort to stop Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, And rewardingly for readers, also allows King to reflect on questions of memory, fate, and free will as he richly evokes mid-century America. The past guards its secrets. This novel reminds us in the horror behind the quotidian is time itself. That's from like the write-up of the five best books of the year at New York Times. Uh, LA Times was probably the most negative review. Um, They said that it didn't hang together in a cohesive way. Um, 1122 reads like two books welded together. The first, Mm -hmm. a follow-up to King's uh, 1986 bestseller, It, set in the fictional main town of Derry, complete with references to that. I know, it's a little weird. Um, And a second, An Assassination Rhapsody. It takes nearly 300 pages for us to get to Texas. And once we're there, 400 more before the drama peaks. Along the way, there are nice bits of domestic detail as Jake settles down and falls in love with a woman who makes him question his sense of sense of time and belonging. I think the reason for that review is the Kennedy stuff is was really emphasized in marketing. And I Mm -hmm. think that is the hook. And that, you know, it does kind of take a while to get to that fireworks factory. But for me personally, (laughs) the best part of best parts of the book have nothing to do with Kennedy, you know? And I think that it's about, you know, this is truly one of those things where it's about the journey, not the destination. If anything, one thing Brennan James and I talk about in our interview is, is the idea of the assignment that Mm -hmm. this like King, you know, you talked earlier about that King didn't allow this one to unfold organically as much. He was really heavily researched and he knew where he was going from moment one. I think even though that this book really works, I think it works in spite of that because Mm -hmm. um, for, I think there is a more interesting book in my opinion, if he never kills Oswald, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, even though that, like, I, I think he was so married to the assignment of killing Lee Harvey Oswald and seeing what would happen if John F. Kennedy lived that I think he sacrifices in some ways more satisfying and interesting avenues. That's my opinion. But um, I think it's it's worth noting. 
So, so I think that that review is maybe in some ways touched on that and that the Kennedy aspect is maybe the least interesting part and it is what the entire marketing and thrust mm-hmm. of the book hinges upon. So, Which that's makes that's sense. That's part of the reason I didn't read it right away because yeah. I was like, mm, I don't know. Well, you're, we're all talking about the marketing, you know? We're all talking about what is drawing us in and, and what better way to really get into the weeds there than our next section two and a half hours later uh the hook ah yes don't you see don't you see how clear it all is not only can you see the future you can i can change it you can change it exactly all right i'm gonna dig into king's thoughts in a minute but i I really want to know just point blank Gun to your head. Let's say Jake Epping, 1978 version, 1973 version, Dirty Jake, walking up to you with a gun, putting it at you. He says, what's this book about punk? <laughs> Randall, what's the what's the hook here for you? Uh, you can't change history. Like, yeah. um, I think, it, you know, I love what you said earlier, Jan, about this whole idea of like being like hitting that age where you look back and you realize you can't change anything. And um, and. I think like truly trying to make the most of the time that you have sounds a little corny, but I think ultimately what is most effective about this book is, um, is, uh, that the tragedy I think of not being able to alter history. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- the more you try to do that, the more you cause an imbalance in your life. And in, I think, you know, the world that as you understand it, that's little, that's the same. On, yeah. for, for for me, especially how it he keeps talking about how like life turns on a dime, mm-hmm. and you just never really can expect when it happens. I mean, we talked a little bit about this, I think, on the Valentine's Day episode, where I was like, because I was coming back from Disney World, and I just loved the moment so much that that we were on this Tom Tom Sawyer Island, Sammy and I, and uh, and I was like, I know this is going to end within seconds. Like, I'm I know we're going to be done with Disney World. We're going to be back home. Everything's going to be in the past. And I can't hold on to that time. And it's something that I've really struggled with my whole life. It's just the idea that like these moments, these gas, they move behind us. Um, and you there like is a tragedy. Long December by Counting Crows. Hey, you know, um, oh. well, I actually have him on the phone right now. Uh, he's, oh, he's I would huge... love to get Adam Duritz on the pod. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, from what I've heard from my past journalists, it's hard to get him off the phone because he'll just keep talking. But adore him. But yeah, same, same right there on the same page with you, Randall. Uh, Jen, what about you? What, what is the hook for you in this book? I think if I had to say one word, it would be Sadie. But I think, mm. like, and it's interesting because we're taught this section is called Watershed Moments. And yeah. I think for me, when I think about this book, I think of the pies and I think of the dances. And so like, I think the hook is that those are the actual watershed moments that we should enjoy. You know, it's like there's this magnitude of the JFK assassination and how it changed the world. And then there's this small life where there's so much beauty and so much joy there. And I think for me, it's that it's that finding the the joy in the little stuff, you know? And it speaks to, I think that there is a meta narrative there about like when you really consider like when we look back at horrible, cause okay. 
I'm going to do this really briefly. I don't want to go too long, but because I love talking about this book in relation to Hearts in Atlantis. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. Is a book all, and I do I, I do that in my interview, so I'm not going to go long. But basically, like the ways that that book is about the regret of mm-hmm. the baby boomer generation that they mm-hmm. weren't able to enact the change that I think they really wanted to during the most revolutionary period in American history in terms of uh, the working class and uh, populism um, kind of like all really pushing towards some kind of radical reformation. And then in the wake of like MLK, RFK, JFK, uh, Malcolm X getting murdered. Uh, and I think like um, there's so much regret in uh, Hearts in Atlantis about like, oh, we all just like gave up on our dreams. Uh, everything got worse, but we got richer. We made money and we got plenty of of consumer we got we got blenders and and refrigerators and all this other shit and like we're comfortable but the world is in a worse place and i think it's interesting that king more or less uh i think exercised a lot of demons with that book and has moved on to accepting powerlessness uh the idea that the only real meaningful change we can enact in the world um and i say this not in a bad way uh, although i think it can be read multiple ways but i think like uh, the small moments, uh, the Jody and Sadie and mm-hmm. making friends and and cultivating community and making memorable moments with people. That is what life is about. And obsessing over, could I have stopped JFK from being murdered and changed the course of history? Uh, I think the older we get, the more we feel the powerlessness that comes with, uh, you know, I mean, I feel that every fucking day when I read the news. It's like mm-hmm. um, everything is so horrible and it's so it can make you feel so powerless to when you ask yourself how can i make this situation better because it's never about the big things that we can do as people who are not part of the 1% it is about like the small things that we can do in our own communities and i think that that's sort of in many ways what this book is also getting at well that and that that kind of plays into something i've been thinking about a lot lately that same sentiment that i've pretty much taken to heart now is that you know, for the longest time, I did argue about stuff online. For the longest time, I was trying to, you know, donate here, making sure that I could get on the, you know, hit the streets for the, these things, write essays, compl- you know, really try to see there's some way to, you know, see change in the world. And I think it's just at this point, you know, one of the the doom, the the more doomier aspects of our generation is just seeing how futile that is and how it's mm-hmm. not going to go anywhere. And then also seeing how it's actually been in turn to manipulate us. Like I, I always think back to like when I go and check out at CVS, right. And they always have these, Hey, round up or add a dollar, add two, $2 or $5. Oh, a scam. And, and like, we'll send it over to the, the thing. I do it just because of, of, of karma hashtag Taylor Swift. But I think of the idea that, sorry for saying it's a scam, but it is, but it is. And, and it's like, why is it on us to make these giant changes when we've know, been voting, right? we've been paying for taxes And I think Mm -hmm. our generation is really one of the more sober generations to basically say, yeah, that's that's not going to help. We're we're never going to push the the world and and change that. And what I've ultimately concluded is exactly what you just said, is just that, you know, when I see people get so vitriolic online, I'm like, you have too much time to waste on your hands. Like, you should be focusing more on just the things that do make you happy. And I think if more people did that, especially in the goodwill of things, like we'd probably have a better world in our hands because it's this idea that your world is is what you make it with the people around you. And you should try to enjoy that and appreciate that because it's going to be gone before you know it. And that's kind of why I, I struggle with, with like those gas of times, like when things are so good, it's like, I hate when things have to end. 
And um, I don't know, that's, that's, that's certainly one thing I take about it. And I think that's probably why this book shattered me in certain ways that I'll, I'll extrapolate on. Uh, Flieger, I know this book all about, is all about the, the, the beef though. You love the, the black market time traveling beef. Um, but I, maybe I just I'm, like the two minute reset. The two minute reset. Wait, two minute reset. That's yeah. what I want. Cause I would probably become a criminal. Like I would just go back and commit crimes. I'd be like, reset. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, I yeah. would be like, I have to wait five years to save this guy. Or can I just go like, you know, steal a car and shoot people and then just come back and be like, reset. So, so your, your, your way of looking at this is how kids look at Grand Theft Auto, the game. You're just going <laughs> to not much. even play the story, but just fucking drive around and, you know, change things. I mean, I, yeah, I'd try to become like a mafioso criminal. I, I would try to build my own empire. It's very noble to save Kennedy, but that would not be the first thing I would go to. And I'd also like, I mean, obviously like Jake uses gambling to his benefit, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that doesn't work out so great for him in the story, but yeah, I don't know. I, I I would be too tempted by the the concept that I could just reset things, yeah, quickly, yeah, and maybe that speaks to my lack of moral fiber. I don't know. Well, I just got a text. Oh, I, I just got. Like, a t- I would just murder a bunch of people. Probably like probably also. would kill a bunch. <laughs> The, there's a DM I just got from the yellow card man. He said, you have to stop that asshole. He is <laughs> ruining my life. He keeps resetting the fucking timeline over well, and over again. Stop re- running over pedestrians. Yeah, yes. And, and can I, and I'll get more into it later on in the series, but I do have a theory that he is left there as an example of what happens when you do abuse the system. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if the evil work of uh, certain villains in like dark tower, for example, uh, there's also mention of Randall Flagg, a man in denim in this book. But I think they're, they leave him out there to show you the decay that happens if you abuse this and go over and over and over again. So I would hate to become like the yellow man or the yellow card man and stuck in that, I don't know, prison of my own construction. But yeah, I'd probably it. go back and do a lot of crimes. Okay, cool. Well, that's that's good to know. Um, well, hey, look, you know, different folks, different strokes. Uh, I Let's talk about the epigraphs. There, there's three of them. There's the Norman Mailer quote which uh, he writes, it is virtually non-assimilable, uh, assimilable, God, Jesus Christ, my reading comprehension, assimilable to our reason that a small lonely man felled a giant in the midst of his limousines, his legions, his throng, and his security is such a non-entity, it destroyed the leader of the most powerful nation on earth, then a world of disproportion, <laughs> disproportion, Jesus, engulfs us, and we live in a universe that is absurd, uh, this is from his book, Oswald's Tale, an American Mystery, which King uh, Lena Big. Did, did, has anyone read Oswald's Tale? No. No, but we talk about it a lot in my interviews. Okay, well, we'll save it for that then. They do talk about this quote when Errol Morris was talking to King, and King says, Norman Mailer, who provides an epigram at the beginning of the book, says people find it very difficult to believe it could have happened the way it happened because it suggests an absurd universe. But there it is. The line is pretty conclusive to me. This is kind of like the same sentiment of like Ka, right? Like that, you know, the universe is going to act on its own accord, perhaps, and we just have to kind of bend to its will a little bit. Or mm-hmm. it kind of seems in the same framework as that. I also wanted to note that Norman Mailer was a special guest on the Gilmore Girls. Uh, was two he years really? Before. Yeah, yeah. That's he's, right. Yeah, he's, he's and Errol Morris uh, praised Nathan Fielder, who we mentioned earlier in the episode. <laughs> it's interesting. Very Ka's a wheel. Yeah. Ka is a wheel. Uh, the Japanese proverb. If there is love, smallpox scars are as pretty as dimples. We're not going to spoil anything, but this absolutely references Sadie, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 
And I think the overall, like, there is no perfect world where bad things don't happen. Like yeah. that, that doesn't exist. Uh, the last one is is arguably a hook in itself of this book, the theme at least. Dancing is life, and King discusses this one with Footman. Uh, and I, and, you when know, say Footman, I, I think you're saying Bookman, like Bookman. Yeah, yeah Bookman. same. Yeah, yeah. The Tropic Cancer is that it is Tro- Tropic of Capricorn. It's one of those. Uh, so. A lot of this has to do with King's relationship to music. He says to Footman, the Tesco blog, by the way, uh, I've always been a pop music fan. I have a good grasp of music between 1955 and now. It's just one of the places where my head feels at home. It's also one of the indicators of how American life changes and what's going on at any particular time. One of the epigrams for 11-22-63 is dancing is life. And dancing is something that has always interested me. It's symbolic in so many ways of the courting ritual. The changes in dancing mirror the changes in the way we court and love and live over the years. I went to YouTube to watch videos of dances from the 50s and 60s, and that was an interesting thing, to watch people do the stroll and the Madison, the Lindy Hop, Hell's a Poppin', fantastic stuff. I'm crazy about music and I'm crazy about dancing and some of that's in the book. Um, and then he kind of talks about music that he was in. I love this sentiment. And I think that all of us have music backgrounds. And I think most of us sort of agree that that's probably at the foremost of pop culture to show the changes. Well, I would even say over film because it's it's coming from the soul. It's coming from, mm-hmm. and, it, and it hits us in personal ways. So I, I do think that this is an interesting hook onto the book in addition to paralleling the joys you would have with those that you love um Mm -hmm. so what any other thoughts on the dancing is life i think well it's interesting that we're you know they're filming life of chuck right now too i was gonna say it resurfaces in life of chuck exactly it's gonna come come again um but i like i have all of these really interesting like theories about well they're not all come from me but about like church services where you all sing together because I think anything that you do with a common goal and you're do you're involving your body and you're doing the same thing as the person next to you it's a really unifying thing and I think dancing is the same um because like we can talk about partner dancing as a courting ritual but also like line dancing or step dancing or like dance like ballet you know it's it's just really interesting and it's it's a physical as well as like artistic thing like you really get your body involved in it yeah can i say i was on jury duty once for a strip club case where a woman was accused of performing sex acts on stage and one of the expert witnesses over this two-day trial was an anthropology professor from university of maryland to discuss uh dance as an expression of sexuality and connection and i I thought that was so fascinating and some of my fellow jurors were like oh how could you have a degree in dance and i was like i thought that was the highlight of the trial like yeah i I also want to hear way more about that trial yeah yeah and and it's well i'll tell you off (laughs) my um (laughs) not guilty by the way um oh but also when they're saying like oh looking at the evolution of dance from 50s to 60s you're like but dance has historically been very sexualized mm-hmm. often yeah. naked you know going back to caveman days well think about but, elvis presley too like right with the yeah. elvis the pelvis but it, mm-hmm. so it became sort of sanitized in this period of time for america which is why i think it's looked back on finally because it's like oh we were so innocent you're like yeah but everything leading up to that was kind of like death destruction this was just the first time that we we're like oh we're putting it on tv so let's you know we're doing the twist but how is that any different than saying shake your ass you know it's uh-huh. it's all just coded um but yeah so that's that's my take on dance as yeah, life for for more uh uh sexual dancing seek out damien chazelle's babylon where you can oh, see how yeah. people dance in the the 
the, the 20s. <laughs> I thought you were about to Long drop your OnlyFans link, Mike. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm actually, that's why I have the mustache now. I'm, I'm starting an OnlyFans. <laughs> it's going to be me dancing. like, like 70s themed. Yeah. Um, do we want to talk a little bit about the Under the Dome 1122 ideas stemming back from the past? I, I know I held back on it earlier, Randall, when you I, were mentioning it. Do I think any- just very simply it's a lot easier to do that depth of research because under the dome was he talked about that too was research was the daunting aspect of it because he kept trying to figure out what would happen weather wise in the dome and he it was like overwhelming in terms Mm. of like the you know um yeah the the weather aspect and so um when you get when you're rich enough to be able to afford research assistance it really helps in that regard but also i think what's more interesting is this whole idea, because you have this quote where mm-hmm. King says, that's what it is, uh, tie up the loose ends. That's not to say that I have any premonition that I'm going to die or anything like that. These things have been there for a long time. Now the time to do them, now is the time to do them if I'm going to do them at all. I'm not getting any younger. I might have 10 productive years left or I might not. And I think it, even though he says like, you know, the whole thing about uh, like, I don't think I'm going to die. It's, you can still see the terror of mm-hmm. the, um, the death I think like the the fear of death that cult, that you know arose in him after the accident yes. because he he finished the dark tower mm-hmm. primarily because he was like well I need to finish this before I die and I think he still is in that mindset of like I got to wrap everything up because I could die at any minute and um you know so mm-hmm. yeah that's a good take that's a good take uh the one thing I thought was cool is the, the to wrap up the the hook here is the parallel to the dead zone um King told mm. Earl Morris, this book is in a way like a photo negative of my novel, The Dead Zone. In that book, Johnny Smith is the guy in the high place with the rifle who feels like he's seeing the future. He's seen this guy, Greg Stilson, and he sees what he's going to do when he becomes president because he has this precog talent. And he feels like he has to kill him. At the last moment, fate intervenes. I got really uncomfortable with the idea of saying, well, under certain circumstances, assassination is a good thing. And in this book is a good chance to do it the other way and to take the assassination back. Uh, I there's actually a lot of parallels I see to some of his greatest hits, and we'll get into them in a section uh, later. But the next section we have to go to is a quick one: structure and format. Pretty self-explanatory. Guy goes back in the past. He comes back in the present. We follow him linearly. I think that's it. There's there there, there any, no big yeah. no big flourishes in this one. It's no. a book. You read the first page first, and then the next one, and then yeah. Yeah, and and in those yeah. pages, we we, we find uh, what do we find? We find we find some some descriptions of the fifties, but we also find some heroes and villains. I'm gonna have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, Massa! All right, you know it. Heroes and villains. We're going to be talking about the characters within 112263. All of them. No, I'm just joking. We're talking about <laughs> the primary characters. Hey, John Travolta has primary colors. I have primary characters here. And the primary characters of the first 97 pages are really Jake Epping, Al Templeton, and on the peripheral. Harry Dunning, who we'll certainly learn more about later, and the yellow card man. Let's talk about Jake first. Um, we know him as uh, this guy that's going through 
pretty tumultuous time in his life. Uh, he's a teacher. He's living in Lisbon Falls. He's just divorced. Um, he says he's not a crying man. He, so he hasn't found that emotional spark. Perhaps that's the, the thing that's blocking him, that's in, inhibiting him from living. Uh, I found the introduction for Jake pretty strong here. And I think mm-hmm. that the way that you learn about Jake really sets the foundation for what the the threads are going to be for this novel. Uh, I think by you know showing him where he's at in school, you get the introduction to Dunning. You really get to kind of find out what his certainly what he's missing in life, and I think that right there is is a nice thread to pull on without expressing it that explicitly. Yeah, um, he, he's he seems bored, like he's aimless, yeah. and I think mm-hmm. the fact that Al gives him a mission, right? It's, yeah, it's he. Jake would have never thought to go save Kennedy, but for Al being like, "Hey, here's something you could do with your life." You know, it's after the divorce. He's not a crying man. He, he does feel like he's kind of coasting, right? Yeah. Even when he's teaching the classes, he seems bored. It's the sense of ennui that's just kind of, I don't know, until he has something to live for, he really is just kind of drifting. Mm-hmm. And he, and Jen, you wanted to talk about, a bit about his relationship because he he's coming off of a divorce and there's a yeah. very interesting characteristic that, that uh, King puts on the page here. It really is. Um, this is, you know, of course, from my perspective, just with addiction, that's the thing that I zeroed in on in this. And I think it's really interesting because he's talking about his wife, Christy, or his ex-wife, Christy, who is just out of rehab. And if unless I'm forgetting somebody, it's the first time I think we have ever seen the other side of this, other than something like Dolores Claiborne, where her husband is just an asshole um, and also happens to be an alcoholic too. But like we see his reaction to Christy going to rehab and... I wonder if he's kind of channeling what he imagines Tabby was feeling when he went to mm-hmm. to rehab. It's also a, a female alcoholic, too, or a female alcoholic in recovery. And I think what we tend to get with King is male alcoholics yeah. or male uh, characters in recovery because that's his frame of reference. So I think it's really interesting. And I just pulled every section where he's talking about her because I think – one thing that strikes me is there seems to be like an element of annoyance or anger, which I can completely understand, and I'm not judging that at all. I just think it's interesting. So he says throughout this this 90 pages, he says, my ex-wife said that my non-existent emotional gradient was the main reason she was leaving me, as if the guy she met in her AA meetings was beside the point. And then I was unable to feel my feelings in AA speak. And then even when you told me I had to go to rehab or you were leaving – That's what Christy says. This conversation happened about six weeks before she packed her things, drove them across town, and moved in with Mel Thompson, boy meets girl on the AA campus. That's another saying they have in those meetings. It was not long after Christy got out of rehab, and I suppose if I was thinking anything, it was to hope that I'd come home and find her sober, which I did. She held on to her sobriety better than she held on to her husband. And then on page 82... My wife was just out of rehab. I was hoping that she'd be home when I got there and I wouldn't have to spend an hour on the phone before locating her and fishing her out of the local water hole, which I, I have done that with my first husband and it sucks. But I think like I see King kind of like uh, angry with himself as a younger man, you know, or like kind of trying to imagine what it was like for Tabby. I also think it's interesting because one of the things they tell you when you first get sober is not to date anybody. Mm-hmm. So part of me is like, is this something that happened in one of his meetings? And this, that's where this inspiration came from. But I do think it's really interesting 
for Jake to be coming from this perspective because he does kind of have this aimless quality. And I wonder if if taking care of Christy was his goal or his his reason for kind of getting up and going through the day with that gone. Now he there's a vacuum in his life and this this is what comes. And and that in turn, his obsession with just being that, you know, her being his project certainly probably fed into that 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 feeling because the, there there was no there was nothing else there beyond that it was just right. there was the the emotional void that she talks about is very telling here and i think that is the the real springboard that we need to give us some sort of soul in the story beyond just the hook of oh he's going to go back and change the past or you know whatever it's like no there's right. there's an absolute human condition that's being examined here which honestly like i think that's I mean, I feel like King's done this forever, but to really get into the nuance and the, the, the nooks and crannies of it, I, I think of like Hearts in Atlantis being one that's that's a big one. I think De- Dolores Claiborne for sure, but even especially like Lisey's story. I think that a lot of the weeds that he gets into for Jake here ties into some of his writing for Lisey's story where he's able to kind of extrapolate the personal, but also kind of get into the the more literary dramatic side of characterization that I think is really important, which is why I think Jake is more is not a Barbie or a stew. I think he's actually some a, a newer protagonist that maybe more like a Johnny Smith, really, if you think about it. Totally agree. And one of the things that I love is I think another writer would have introduced this character and this inability to cry as a masculinity yes. thing. And like, I'm too manly to cry. And I love that that's not what it is. It's just like, this is not how I express emotion. And I also wonder if there's a numbness after being married to an alcoholic that has kind of crept in and he just, he doesn't want to access those emotions. Not that he can't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I- I put in the comments like uh, he reminds me more of Edgar Fremantle, mm. the way that that marriage mm. is handled. Where yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. starts and it's you get the reasons. There's a divorce, but we don't really. That's not really the story here, right? We just uh-huh. we want to establish that this is a divorce divorced person who's moving on and finding yes. some inspiration elsewhere. So I, I think he's more of that versus a Barbie who's maybe more of a drifter type. Yeah, or Stu who I think has like a very strong moral compass. I don't think. Edgar or Jake have that moral compass necessarily until they're put into a stressful position to become a hero, right? They, the hero arises. Yeah. It wasn't always within them, but they had to figure out how to become that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just like the, the idea of somebody who is like born in the, like also there's a melancholy to him. And then it's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. he, he, he thrives in another era, you know, like yeah. the idea that you were born into the wrong era and mm-hmm. you're genuinely happier in another time period, which is what I feel like that's kind of almost a fantasy of a lot of people is like, yeah. oh, I would have been so much happier in the 70s or whatever, which, you know, may or may not be true. But it's it's interesting to consider. It's yeah. it's interesting, too, because like that same year, Midnight in Paris comes out, which has a lot of sentiments to that notion. You know, exactly. considers that notion of just like, oh, my, I would have thrived in this time period and all, which I you know, I think this book makes a little bit more of an argument that he actually does thrive more in the 50s yeah. in this, you know, anyway. Um, let's talk about Al real quick, though, because the what I love about Al is that it's it's doing the thing that, that King does best is when you have the elder statesman kind of showing something. I, I got a lot of Lewis Creed and Judd vibes from the two yes. of them together. Yeah. You know, the fact that he knows the secret, he's letting him in on the secret. But then he tasks them in a way that Judd doesn't do. But it, you, still, the mechanics are there. And I, again, it's like 
if he reminds me a little bit of of uh you know Johnny Smith at the Dead Zone and certainly the love story there reminds me of it it's interesting that he's hitting on another greatest hit with this relationship dynamic that that certainly recalls that uh, you know in Pet Cemetery which is you know I think we'd all agree is a top 5 for us so there's a lot of greatest hits happening without it being explicitly greatest hits material and I just think it's just like him leaning on what he knows works best and I think Al as this conduit for him and for the story, it's enough for me. I, I know that, but Randall, you you'd mentioned earlier that like there is some like clunkiness to Al that that, that well, yeah, he just become section. after there when he's when he's a character, he's interesting. When he yeah. becomes a um, a vessel for exp- like uh, explicating King's research on the Oswald mm. Kennedy thing, I think something is lost. Like Basil exposition. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree. Like I I. And no, not to get too spoilery, but how soon he leaves the novel on the reread, I was like, wow, he's really not in it for that much. He he just yeah. sort of is what puts Jake in motion, right? He he kind of gets the wheels going, starts the engine up. Um, but it's but his yeah. journal that continues through the story, I think, right. too, which is, yeah, that research piece. It'd be like if Judd welcomed them. And I was like, uh, oh, hey, there's the pet cemetery behind your house. Well, I'm going to, you know, me and Norma are leaving. Here's my diary. Yeah. Yeah. It's, like, it's like, do you right. want my book collection? Right. Uh, I don't know how Al goes, like, he has the power to go back in time. So he uses it to go buy cheap beef. Yeah. Right. You know, like, yeah, there's to- this altruism, too. He's like, I don't want to charge more. I just yeah. want to make good burgers. Not to say I'm criminal minded, but again, I would find the richest. <laughs> bank near the portal so that if i had to run from the cops i could just immediately jump back with all the money whereas he gets discounts on ground beef see i'd like like you talk about wanting to commit crimes like i'd go back i'd like kill someone just to like know what it feels like and then i'd come back because you okay. also know they're going to reset right so yeah. that'll be fine it's kind so of a free you pass. know the meme that's like if i win the lottery i'm not going to say anything but there will be signs if like <laughs> yeah. by the end of this series dan is living in like a mansion and like <laughs> France and Randall has like grown a sinister mustache. Or yeah, and there's we're gonna know y'all found a rabbit hole. Me and Randall are gonna bust up the joint. Right, right, and me and Mike will just have read and watched everything we ever wanted to. Yeah, or Mike would just be yeah. living in the seventies. Oh uh, no, I'd be gone. I'd just be yeah. like, who is that guy again? Um, Mike just wants to go to Caddyshack opening night. I want to go to Caddyshack <laughs> opening day. I'm I'm gonna get there in fifty eight, and I'm just gonna be like, God, what am I gonna do for all this time? And I'm just gonna live rent free somewhere um yeah. anyway just go see every good stand-up live like i like will Richard Pryor, he's going places well i'm just gonna i'm gonna Hold go to so. actually He'd what i would be right all the time instead of making money off of it what i do is i'd go to the uk and i'd, I'd hang out in liverpool bars and then when i saw mccartney and and uh you know lennon and all them i would just linger and be like hey uh do you guys need a manager yeah. <laughs> like and that's what yeah. would happen so uh two other characters um, because we, again, look, I know you're probably thinking this is kind of a sur- surface level read on these characters. We have five more episodes, <laughs> five more episodes. We are going to be talking about these characters nonstop because we're going we to are... pull so many passages. Yes. Yeah, because we have we so much. Brief. Yeah, we, we did. We kept it brief because we had to get to the nitty gritty of the history. So if you're thinking like, oh, there's not a lot to talk about Jake yet. We've got 97 pages. There's not a lot to talk about. We have fucking 700 more so we're going to get to it um and we're certainly going to get to these other characters so let's just you know keep it cursory here but harry dunning uh i feel like we all know have or have had a harry dunning in our life at some point um i know i've uh, you know in my school uh there are certainly janitors that 
I was actually really friendly with, and I, I thought they were really cool, and we'd talk about stuff. And um, there, but there was this sort of melancholy feeling that that King kind of puts there too, because I think a lot of it's coming from his own experience, because he was a janitor at one point. Um, I think there's, I don't know, there's there's a sadness that I understand and I relate to, and I think it's a timeless sadness. I think we always will have these type of characters in our lives. So I do actually think that Dunning is a another good conduit for story here. Um, that we're obviously going to be talking about a, sh a shit ton in the in the next section because that's really all about his family. Um, mm -hmm. But any thoughts, at least in these ninety seven pages, about uh, Harry Dunning? Well, he's like the the perfect like the the emotional what if. Yeah, you know, like what yeah. if this hadn't happened? How would this one person's life be changed? Which I think is an, a really interesting microcosm compared to what would the world be like if JFK hadn't been assassinated? Yeah. Any other? Yeah, uh, I I, go. I think of the Neil Young, the keep on rocking in the free world. Yeah, like yeah. the one less kid who will get to go to school, get to have friend, get to be cool. It's it's you, you, there are people that you meet that, that just sadly you're like, man, this person just had like the deck stacked against them so much. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's really great and touching for me at least. That was the first emotional impact I had was Jake giving him the A plus. Yeah, and just him being like, this is like the first time I've won. You know, it's the first yeah. time luck shined on me for a second and i think it's cool that jake recognizes the you know it's not the most well-written thing but it's so truthful and honest that the you know grammar doesn't really matter it's the message underneath and i think that's even speaks to king you know he loves to talk about different authors and write it and he clearly is obsessed with just reading constantly so him seeing something truthful and just recognizing it as beautiful and especially with jake who just seems like He's Dead so inside. over it. He's just mailing it in. Yeah. And then this guy just, for whatever reason, just really, it, it just spoke to him and touched him in the way that he hasn't felt emotional in a long time. Yeah. Well, and to see how he is able to be happy with what he has also, which I think is something Jake is going to yeah. discover later on in the novel. Randall, any thoughts on uh, Mr. Dunning? Seems like a real jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's another car is green. <laughs> One other jerk that we have to kind of quickly talk about the yellow card man. Again, we're going to go into full depth with him just as he gets evolved, but kind of creepy, you know, like I, I did want to ask you, uh, Flieger, though, when you first read this book and this character appeared, did your immediate thoughts go to Midworld? Oh, yeah. I, I thought he might have been Tahin. And obviously we have like men in yellow coats. Oh. I, he, yeah, that's what I thought of initially. Yeah, yeah there, there's something, and I'll, I have some theories that I'll divulge in other episodes. Stay tuned. But yeah, there, there's something very, I, I think of him as a warning, and I just think of him as like the rot and mm -hmm. the fact that you, you, he looks like he's dying, right? He doesn't look well. His yeah. mind is gone. And even the card is changing color. And it's like that idea of like you're being radiated. Yeah. And there's just a sickness to this time travel that, I mean, Jake could become the yellow card man yeah. if he's not careful. And I, I think Al's, uh, you know, illness clearly yeah. was accelerated, not just mm. from the time he spent in the past, but just the process of going. I think it does mm -hmm. something to the body that's irreversible. Yeah. Yeah. What about I you? think of his killer uh, violin solo on the Spider-Man 2 soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Nice. Uh, it comes into my head every time yeah, we talk about Yellow Card It's a good one. It's a good one. Uh, it's a good song and a good soundtrack. <laughs> well, wait, there's a. I, I see another character. It's a yellow card song. Yeah, yeah. Holy shit. It's Annie Wilkes, and she's holding a book. In, <gasps> in the book, it's Misery. She she died. She just slipped away. 
slipped away! Slipped away! He didn't just slip away! You did it! 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 You murdered my misery! All right, real quick. I think this is probably going to be a fast one just because I, I honestly couldn't really find too much on here. But uh, round robin, what is one thing, one dour aspect of this uh, stretch of the 97 pages we have here? Uh, Randall, what, what was one thing that you didn't like? I think very briefly, just like the way that that Al sort of like serves as this don't make me explain mm-hmm. um like the time travel shit like she's like he's like i don't know let's move on (laughs) yeah it's not misery it's just funny and it like like i said i kind of came around on the time travel stuff but there is this like l l is l in that scene becomes king yeah in the sense that he's like here's my my jfk research conspiracy theorists are insane and uh don't ask me any deeper questions about the time travel yeah (laughs) like just just have fun (laughs) it's like yeah it's like when sci-fi when what was that there was like a sci-fi movie that came out where it was just like oh yeah all we have to do is write a line about how things something works and then yeah exactly you know, yeah 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 don't uh, pull in that thread yeah, yeah. Uh, it's something with the minds you know yeah yeah Here. jen what about you is there something that you were like fuck this book i don't have anything <laughs> like i was originally thinking about talking about christy in this section but like i don't think i dislike it i yeah. just think like some of it you know as somebody who's been in that situation kind of I'm like oh shit can you see me but yeah i don't really have anything what about you Fleur? Yeah, I, I'm struggling to think of something. I guess it's the exposition is a little strange, but we kind of had to see. It's like the end of the school year, right? Things are w- wrapping up, but you kind of had to have that to understand, you know, Jake teaching adult education, right? So yeah. to me, it all like fits pretty well. I, I don't really have any complaints here. I do lose the track of what day of the year it is. Like he's talking about two different like yeah like educational mo- moments in time, and I get them mixed up because it has the two years later thing. It's exactly. just like wait, what? We're like it's like two pages into the book. <laughs> it's like <laughs> right, two, right. Pa- two years later. I, uh, I think it gets moving pretty quickly, you know. And it's yeah. you, you have to have a little bit of that, you know. Okay, let's set and setting table setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it, it gets going pretty quick. Well, it does, and uh, who, you know who else is uh, pretty quick is Stephen King, especially when he's behind a word processor, and then especially if it's the word processor of the gods. And we're going to make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing. Whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here, when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Again, 97 pages. Not a lot here uh, to, to, to lean on, but there has to be a few passages at least. Uh, let's go with one each. Given the, 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 the span of page lengths, I don't think there's enough to go around three times, but let's do one each. Uh, Jen, what was one passage that you thought was just, boom, he nailed it? I really liked the the root beer part. Um, on page thirty eight, he he opened an ice cream freezer and removed a frosty mug, roughly the size of a lemonade pitcher. 
He filled it from a tap, and I could smell the root beer, rich and strong. He scraped the foam off the top of the handle of a wooden spoon, then filled it all the way to the top and set it down on the counter. There you go. That and the paper's 18 cents, plus a penny for the governor. For the governor. The governor. I sipped, <laughs> and then I'm skipping. I sipped through the foam on top and was amazed. It was full, tasty all the way through. I don't know how to express it any better than that. This 50 years gone world smelled worse than I ever would have expected, but it tasted a whole hell of a lot better. I just like, like... We've talked about the the implications of that, but I really like the way he wrote that. Also, I love root beer, so it made me want one. I do too. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm gonna put some vanilla ice cream in. I might actually get a a, a cat burger after this. This will be good. Um, Randall, do you have a a real cat? Do you have a passage that uh, that you outlined? I just love the whole intro. I think like the whole pro mm-hmm. prologue, like the introduction to Jake is one of the better introductions for a character I think I've read. Um, mm-hmm. I find, I think it's just like a really beautiful, emotionally potent, um, like intro to that character. I'm like instantly on his wavelength and that's impressive. In a way, it feels like reading the early section of um, on writing, you know, when he's mm. kind of going through the beats of his own life and how it's kind of informed him. Yeah. It feels like a little microcosm of that. Yeah, I there's a there's a lot of like one-liners that feel very in line with like some of his best stuff in the body and and Shawshank, um, mm-hmm. but I but I do love is just how King is able to often really nail like the process or the feeling or something that's happening so that we can understand fully on our end, and that's on like page twenty-seven. He's like. Um, but what had I found? What exactly was I experiencing? The power of suggestion seemed the most likely answer since no matter what I felt, I could see my foot on the floor. And this is when Jake's walking through for the first time. Except, you know how on a bright day, you can close your eyes and see an after image of whatever you were just looking at? It was like that. When I looked at my foot, I saw it on the floor. But when I blinked, either a millisecond before or a millisecond after my eyes closed, I couldn't tell which. I caught a glimpse of my foot on a step. And it wasn't in the dim light of a 60 watt bulb either. It was in bright sunshine. That's such a cool way of describing the, the thinny, if you want to call it that, that he's going through. And um, he's good at that. Like, you know, sometimes it doesn't always work. Like a lot of the stuff in the wastelands, I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? But um, I think when he nails it, it's like, yeah, good. This is, this is visual storytelling. This is awesome. Um, well, What's not so awesome is this creep I'm feeling. It's uh, it's getting kind of chilly. And no, we didn't leave the freezer door open. It's because right next to Al's diner is the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because... Whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Spooky stuff in this book, uh, or not in the book, but in the 97 pages. I, I think we're a little limited here, uh, but if anyone's got something scary, throw it out. Jen, you, I think you said something, or Flieger, do you have one? Yeah, it, go, it ties into word processor, um, but I, it's the if a little bit of a foreboding when he's seeing the uh, pantry for the first time, and Al asking me, he's like, what do you smell? Spices, mostly coffee, maybe air freshener too. I'm not sure. Uh huh. I use Glade because of the other smell. Are you saying you don't smell anything else? Yeah, there's something kind of sulfury. It makes me think of burnt matches. It made him think of poison gas. My family had put on my mom's uh, the poison gas. My mom. Uh, it may also makes me think of the poison gas I and my family had put out after my mom's 
Saturday night bean suppers, but I didn't like to say so. Did cancer treatments also make you fart? It's sulfa. Other stuff too. None of it should know number five. It's the smell of the mill, buddy. It's that matter of factness of the Yankee, mm-hmm. the very main, and it's you know it's a it's a place of where food is stored. But it's like wait, no, something is off here. And the yeah. smell of sulfur is one of the most repulsive smells I yeah. can think of. So just the idea that he's going in there and it's like, well, you already are being told your senses are warning you. This is not a good place to be. Yeah. And I don't know. To me, that was the the sense of foreboding was like, oh, that's, that's something bad is going to happen. And he's good at that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jen, what about you? I had two things that I'm not going to read, but I have when when he goes back and reads the essay and he talks about the crime um, mm-hmm. and just it's just so horrifying. And the the blood that he keeps coughing it, like thinking about having to have yeah. a maxi pad for that much blood coming out of you, just it, of your mouth, and just. And that ties into like King's own fears of just the body of just like yeah. decaying and having nothing to do about it. He talks mm-hmm. with us about that with the Dreamcatcher, uh, Randall. I don't really have anything for cemetery or pound no. cake, really. I don't. Need, I, d- I definitely don't for pound cake. For this, the I only either, yeah. the only one that I thought was actually kind of creepy is just how. And again, King's so fucking good at doing this is just showing how the past is obdurate, which mm-hmm. we haven't gotten to that saying yet, I don't think, but we've we've certainly hinted at it. So like on, on page 76, when he's like, um, something doesn't want it to be changed. I'm pretty sure of that, but it can be. If you can take the resistance into account, it can be. Al was looking at me, eyes bright in his haggard face. All in all, the story of Caroline Pullen ends with and she lived happily ever after wouldn't you say and just that whole story of the way that you can reset it and she could have this great life with that she can walk and there's the other one where she's gotten shot and is in a wheelchair it's just that the 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 especially tied with al's kind of insistence that time is almost a character in itself which king does really good at you know especially when he talks about like can he kind of hints at the 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 wendigo and like pet cemetery mm-hmm. like that stuff is spooky to me and i think king's really good at just you know giving us a little to to make us think about a lot um and i and one of those thoughts sometimes for me is like god i'm fucking hungry i just need a snack and i'll be honest i uh the corporate overlords gave me a, a pumpkin bread earlier this this Ooh. morning and i'm out of it and but i'm not in the mood for pumpkin bread i'm in the mood for some pound cake after all you've been talking everyone in bad mama everything in the Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. And God damn it, I don't see any in the fridge. Does anyone else see it? I mean, you could maybe talk about the coughing blood in... There's a little bit of overlap in there, but no, I didn't have anything. Except for the scene where Jake and Al fuck in the pantry. Oh, shit. I <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah. Though, that was in a super hot. Yeah. It's like, you know... You yeah. smell that, Jake? Well, and there's also like him talking about the sulfur, the bean, when you eat yeah. too much beans, you know. But yeah, yeah there's, there's nothing really. Well, let's just say we are going to get some pound cake because the We're namesake of the of section pancake. is from this book. And oh, there will we'll, be... You'll be feasting later. It's going to be uh-huh. feasting. Uh, but for now, though, um, all right. Well, I'm kind of bummed out. We don't have much to eat. But we, who needs to eat when you're roaming around King's Dominion? There's another world out there. I know there is. There is a lot of King's Dominion in this for the 97. So I think we could just, we don't have to read passages, but we could kind of just call them out real quick. Um, Flieger, what was one that you that you saw? Um, just the, uh, what's his name again? Sorry, the janitor, his father dying in Shawshank prison. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stomach injury or stomach infection. Lots of locations. Randall. 
Plymouth Fury. Yeah. Christine, which is in the miniseries, I believe, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe they have that. Uh, Jen, what's her, uh, another King's Dominion? Well, we the... Okay, this is the not, the not so obvious one of the two that I found is when he's talking about um, the phrases that he hates as a writer. It reminded me of that tweet that I always hear in my head when anybody writes for a long moment or uh, at the end of the day. And those aren't the words he said, but um, yeah, that, so that's, I don't know if that counts or not, but the, page 57. There is the, Fleer already mentioned it, but the jaunt with like the close your eyes, that seems very, mm-hmm. you know, pointed in that. Um, all them jaunts too he does yeah yeah um what else we have owl living at number 19 mm-hmm. yeah 19 bluebird lane that's where george amberson 19 for the cost yeah he kind of goes overboard with the 19 already in the first night oh i know <laughs> and there's also funny. you know mentions of dairy haven and castle rocks so. yeah, yeah so we get some locations he's having fun with the locations here in addition to the mm-hmm. ones that he actually lived in the one that i thought was really funny and cheeky um, although probably a little problematic now is that at one point they're talking about the failed attempts to kill Hitler and they, I think it's Al or I think Al or maybe Jake says I'd seen that movie too. And that movie is Brian Singer's Valkyrie and Brian Singer directed at pupil, uh, which Jen, you just talked about with the, we the did. Yeah, we talked about it in hardwares. There's all, also, uh, I mean, that's about Nazis too. Yeah. So, yeah. Anything else? No. Yeah. The, the only other thing I saw was just the, uh, the root beer is clearly a big part of Hearts in Atlantis, which mm, I think mm-hmm. clearly King just fucking got off on root beer in the 50s because it stayed with him. It's like in multiple books and stuff. So that's fun. I think uh, and Carrie too. I think so. I think the fruit company. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's about it. That's, that's, that's all I got. Although there was one weird thing that like we talked about Albert uh, Dutton from, uh, you know, the founder of Dutton Jewelry being real earlier. Uh, but there is an Eleanor Dutton in it. She's like a friend of Sonia Casbrack. So I wonder if the Dutton yeah. name, because of the Dutton jewelry that he'd known in Lisbon Falls, was just just stuck with him. And I I, oh, I yeah. have to imagine it did. Um, yeah. Well, it's time to leave King's Dominion, but we're certainly not leaving this book because we're not going to be doing final thoughts yet. That's that's five episodes later. Remember, this is going to be a six episode series. Instead, let's tease what's next. So. You're going to hear Randall speak to Brennan James. I think you've teased a lot already. Uh, on that. Yeah, I'll just say that that conversation more than my one with Jim D'Eugenio um, is, is we talk about the sourcing that King used. We talk about Kennedy. We talk about conspiracy theories. We also just talk about the book because Brendan is a big Stephen King fan. So he yeah. talks about uh, his journey with King and, and also um, – uh, his thoughts on 1122. But since, you know, politics is his thing and, you know, he's a co-host of Blowback and, um, you know, very noted uh, researcher and writer, he, and he's just really smart about politics. And he, we talk a lot about sort of King's political evolution throughout the years um, from, you know, kind of the, uh, the hippie days in college to, you know, kind of where he's at now. And it's a, it's a pretty interesting way to or a thing to look at, I think, in the context of his books. And it is, to me, a relevant discussion considering uh, the fact that a lot of that stuff has bled into the work, you know what I mean? Especially in this book. So, yeah, yeah, I think it's a great conversation. I'm very excited for people to hear it. Well, we dropped this in 1122 because unlike King, we actually did want to tie it to the anniversary. Uh, And it is the anniversary. It's 60 years, 1122-23. It's now been 60 years since uh, that fateful day in Dallas. And uh, 
we decided to start the series then. You know, you can thank us later. Uh, you can thank us after the series is done because we're back the following week on a regular programming on Friday with, uh, we got another regular Friday drop for part two of 11-22-63, which is the janitor's father, which uh, sees us losers back in our alma mater, uh, Derry, Maine. And uh, who will be joining us? Well, Jen and, and Flieger here. We, we mm -hmm. are certainly going to be on that journey. And we have another special uh, special guest who is a loser. So because everyone wanted to be on these th this series, so we had to, to shake it up this way. Uh, and it's going to be fun. Uh, and you're going to have to tune in. But for now, just follow us on socials for any updates. There's a lot of updates going on. We just did a whole Hollywood King episode last week uh, or two weeks ago that showed you how many headlines are out and there's still some coming up. So definitely uh, follow on socials for all the news and just to kind of see where we're at because we are going to be doing some fun little special events here and there, maybe some trivia, uh, maybe some other pop-up things that we're thinking of to, to eventize this a little bit more. Uh, you could also join our Patreon for more content beyond 1122. You know, if you want, if you're thinking like, look, I've read that book or maybe I haven't read that book. It's a little daunting. I'm going to get to it later. And you still want that Losers Club content. We're going to have some in, in, the, in the Patreon. So www.patreon.com slash the Barons. You'll get some more content there. Uh, but, you know, what we really want are some bright red Pennywise clown noses. So why don't you just leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and talk about how cool it is that, you know, one of your favorite Stephen King podcasts are dedicating so many episodes to one of your favorite books, just like they did on your other favorite book that has dairy in it. It. So I, th I think we deserve the the, the clown noses. It's a, it's a time of giving. It's a season of giving. So so give back a little bit. Um, anyway, until then, we'll be seeing you in two minutes or <laughs> over long days and pleasant nights. This is the end of our show, for now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.